0: Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack And Sean Chapman We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show We are going to be doing a roundup on something we almost never talk about on this show Which Mm -hmm. is American television, (laughs) Sean Yes, I mean you watch a lot of American television, I watch almost none Which is why it usually doesn't come up and I, But I haven't in the last like yeah. year or so, because I've been watching a lot of Gundam and other anime. You and I, obviously, we talk about anime a lot. We have a whole separate anime podcast called Weekly Suit Gundam. We talk about British TV a lot, because of Doctor Who. But like the only American shows we've talked about recently even are uh, The Mandalorian and um, Game of Thrones, because it ended. Yeah, and that's right. But today we're talking about three really good shows. We are going to go back to The Mandalorian because we had reviewed every episode basically week by week, um, but then episode eight, the finale aired right as I left for Japan, so I didn't even see it until I got back into the United States uh, a couple weeks ago, so we're going to get to talk about basically just how awesome The Mandalorian was, do a final wrap up on that. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to review Netflix season one, which I think is of particular interest because you and I both... Love The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. It was one of our games of the decade. We love the books by Andrzej Sapkowski. I looked up how to say it. Um, and, And the show is a really interesting thing that you talked about a little bit two weeks ago on the show. But now I've seen the whole thing. And I think we both like it with asterisks.
1: Yeah, I think... Because I kind of followed you watching it because you were tweeting it out. And I feel like our opinions on the show are probably basically identical based on yes. your
0: tweets. So that'll be exciting. And then another one that I'm really excited to talk about is HBO's Watchmen, which is the show that Damon Lindelof created based on the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons comic book. Really, it's a it's a sequel to the comic um, and a very interesting show. And I, you and I have not talked about it at all, but I know you've seen it.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, why would it? so? All of these are. It's going to be interesting because all of these are things I watched like a couple of weeks ago. Um, where I guess for you, you watch Watchmen when it aired. Yeah. But you just finished The Witcher, and you watched the most recent episode of the Mandalorian like a week ago. Whereas all this stuff is like a month plus old for me. Yeah. So I'm going to have to dig into the memory banks for some of this stuff. But that's okay. Yeah, they're all three really good. And very, very different TV
0: shows. Yes. Uh, We also have a little bit of TV show news. So I think this is going to be a fun, different kind of episode. Um, If you are wondering, hey, guys, you still have not given us the top 10 video games of 2019 episode, don't worry. It's coming. It'll be by the end of the month. I think it will be our February 17th episode. If you are so excited, you need to mark it on your calendars. But it's coming. Uh, The main reason is just, A, we've had other things to talk about and B, I am still trying to finish a certain game that I would mm-hmm. not feel good doing the episode without. So I just want to stress it'll be late, but it'll be better because we're delaying it. Yeah, yeah, and I am i have my list basically made. I have a couple
1: of dumb award things that I do that I, I'm still sort of hashing out how to land the joke. Yes. But <laughs> yeah, mine has been done for a while, but you're still... You're in the mines.
0: You're in the video game mines, trying to dig out the last um, juices from 2019. I am, because I I basically did not play video games through the end of December, almost all of January. Now it's the beginning of February, and I kind of just got back into it. But yeah, do you want to talk some stuff, Sean? Because there's a game I've played a little bit of, but I think you've played more of. Do you want to talk a little bit about Dragon Ball Z Kakarot? Yeah, so I've actually played
1: a lot of Dragon Ball Z Kakarot because I'm now in like the post-game section where there's still a lot to play, but I've played through the main story um, because that's like basically all I've done with my free time for the past two weeks because it's been a little while since we actually recorded a podcast. Um, yeah, so for people who don't know, Dragon Ball Z Kakarot is an action RPG game that takes place over the course of the entirety of Dragon Ball Z. So it's from Raditz showing up um and kidnapping Gohan to the defeat of Boo, um and it so it's the whole shebang. It's not the way that it used to happen, where it's like everything seemed to always go up to the Cell Saga when we were doing Dragon Ball Z story in games, <laughs> and then just like you just never got to the Boo stuff. That there's that long period where every game seemed to do that. They they put the whole thing in this. Um and I have enjoyed it a lot. I really like Dragon Ball Z Kakarot. It is a game that has. Some corners cut in places, um, clearly. Like, it would have been nice if they had been given more time to kind of flesh some stuff out. But overall, if you're a fan of Dragon Ball Z, and particularly... It's, so this game works really well for me, because I'm a fan of Dragon Ball Z. I'm a fan of the legacy of Goku games, which are the um sort of top-down action RPGs on the GBA and I'm also a fan of Cyber Connect 2's uh, Naruto Ultimate Ninja Storm games which Cyber Connect is the developer on this so since I'm a fan of all three of those things this game is exactly what I expected it to be and exactly what I wanted it to be so I'm super satisfied with it so if you are in that position like you absolutely should play Dragon Ball Z Kakarot I think if, if some if maybe two of those things you're not a huge fan of this game might not satisfy you. Like, I don't think if you're someone who's looking for like a Dragon Ball Z game that's more action focused, you're not going to like this game that much. Um, if you're looking for something that has like deep RPG mechanics, you're definitely not going to like this game very much. But if you you want to experience the Dragon Ball Z story all the way through, have some fun, like ridiculous high octane cutscenes, particularly at the end of the Boo stuff. Those cutscenes are crazy. Um, and you want to have some, like, interesting side quests and kind of fun downtime, and, like, it's very, to me, a very relaxing game, um, this game is right in your ballpark, and I've
0: enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, so I have played through, basically, When You Kill Raddits, so I have not played a ton of it yet. Yeah, that's, like, a couple of hours into the game. Yeah, and I will say, almost all of it made me smile. It's, I think the presentation is wonderful, I think it is very, very clearly made by people who love Dragon Ball Z because it is just bursting with fan service and details and all sorts of good stuff. The voice acting is wonderful. Somehow, Mm -hmm. every time Masako Nozawa goes back to do Little Kid Gohan, it's cuter. I don't know how, but just like go from Original Z to like Kai to Kakarot, and it's like every time she makes Gohan even cuter, and I love it. Um, so, you know, although it is kind of, it's sad. In the in the early going, you have a lot of the actors who have had to be replaced because of untimely deaths, which is yeah. sad. Um, so that was hitting me. This is the first time I've heard Enma Daioh not voiced by Daisuke Gori, and I was like, oh, that's sad. But um, all the people who obviously are alive and kicking are doing it. It's the first time you get to hear New Bulma doing a lot of this stuff. Which is cool. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. So Aya Hisakawa, is yeah. the actress that replaced Hidetoshi Like the only
1: other stuff that she's done is like Dragon Ball Super Broly. I think maybe there's like another game or something that's happened in the meantime that I'm blanking on. But she hasn't done a lot um, in replacing Bulma. And this is interesting. This like, I mean, this is the whole thing. Like, like there's very little that is cut from like the manga version of the story. There are a couple of things that they kind of skip over. But I mean it's it is the story of Dragon Ball Z so it's it's the first time for a lot of these recast actors like the new King Kai, the new um King Inma, the new Bulma that they get to do some of like the original Dragon Ball Z material and it's kind of interesting if you're you know if you like the Japanese VO from that perspective which was something I had not thought about at all going into the game it had not occurred to me until I heard Bulma speak this like oh right shit time is a thing and like people have passed on and it's Like, you know, it's it's a it's sort of a weird experience, but all the replacement actors do a really, really good job. Oh,
0: totally. And and I actually enjoy hearing. I mean, I'm I'm very sad and I will probably never get over Hiromi Suru's passing. But Aya Hisakawa is really good as Bulma. and, And like this is proof of it, I think, hearing her do like proper old Bulma material. Um Uh, Who have I actually haven't Gotten to this point In the game obviously So they would have They'd have to have A new Mr. Satan again Because the second Mr. Satan Mm -hmm. passed away Which sucks Because the original Mr. Satan was Daisuke Gori And he was great The replacement Mr. Satan was the guy Who voiced um, Professor Oak on Pokemon He was also great So they must have A third one now Yes Um, And he does
1: a good job It's the guy I don't remember his name Off the top of my head But it's the guy Who voices All Might From um, My Hero Academia Which is very good Oh cool okay Um, yeah, so he does a good job. I'm glad they took it's definitely it seriously like, there. Yeah, it's definitely like, you know, it's it is weird having to like have now have a third Japanese Mr. Satan, and in my heart of hearts it's always Daisuke Gordia, Yeah, but he does a really good job, and it, again, it is like kind of interesting to be like, okay, here's an opportunity for this. Like, if they're going to do more stuff with Mr. Satan in the future, whenever Dragon Ball comes back, um, it's good to have like um this actor be able
0: to sort of do some of that classic material as well. Yeah, cut his teeth on it a little bit um yeah so i that there's a bit of a tangent but you know that's great i love the um the, that they use some of the actual original shinsuke kikuchi music in the game which yeah to me that's
1: huge um having like it's not like the whole original dragon ball z soundtrack is here or that there's not a lot of original music because there is a lot of original music but there's probably a good like 15 to 18 um tracks that they pull from the classic stuff which Almost never happens in Dragon Ball Z video games. Like, it's so rare. Um, even with, like, the American music, if you know, the Falconer stuff, it's, like, it's one of the things that made me think about Legacy of Goku, because Legacy of Goku were games made in America yeah. by American devs, and so they used the Falconer soundtrack from the American original Funimation dub as the basis for the OST for those games. And so there's something weird to be like, oh, this is like this game really is just like a 3D led legacy of Goku game, down to them being able to use original music, which every Dragon Ball game ever just uses like weird generic, like butt rock kind of music, like Dragon Ball Fighters or something. That's usually fine, but it's never like it never evokes Dragon Ball to me. Um and this there are moments that where they use stuff like the instrumental versions of Chala Hetchala or um, one thing they do that's really smart is when you go to the Boo section of the story, they introduce, um, instrumental versions of We Were Angels and We Got a that's Power. That's so good. Which is, oh.
0: it's very, it's very fucking good when they make that switch. Is like, these people fucking get it. Holy shit. Yeah, no, I love the Hedgehog version that plays, like, on when you're flying around the world. Um, it's so good. Yeah, I, I think the only other time it's happened is the Sparking games on PS2, which were released here as Budokai Tenkaichi. Um... Those games in the in Japan had a Kikuchi soundtrack, uh, and in America they replaced it with the generic butt rock music. Yeah, yeah. Because I've I've I have played some of those, but obviously only the right. American version, so I didn't even know that. Yeah. So it's very cool. Um. Yeah. So I've enjoyed what I've played. I have not enjoyed the combat yet, and that's kind of. I've also been playing some other games for the twenty nineteen list, so those have taken priority. Um. My initial reaction was with all the 3D combat, I was like, oh, I wish this was just, like, a Dragon Quest turn-based thing because everything else feels like it's in place for that. But you've played more of the game, so you can probably tell me whether or not I should stick with it. I think definitely stick with it. Like, for me, the game didn't click until after I finished the
1: Saiyan Saga material. Um, and part of that is, I think, my honestly, my favorite stuff in the game is what they call the intermission sections. So basically for each saga, Saiyan Saga, Frieza Saga, Cell Saga, Boo Saga... Um, in between those, there's a good chunk of gameplay that's you just flying around doing, like, side quest material. Um, and it's usually original material. They do a couple of things based on um, old filler episodes, which I wish they had done this more because it's fun when they do it. Um, the one that they do in the most detail is the Goku Piccolo learning how to drive. Well, of course. <laughs> which is very fun. Like, down to even having the, like, the two driving instructors. Like, the weird crazy lady and the old man. Whoa. Like, they they've... They really go to detail in replicating that episode. The one thing they don't do, and I get why you, this would be a lot of work for this one dumb joke, but they don't model the dumb like human outfit that Piccolo wears, which is my favorite part of that oh, story that's too with bad. His dumb hat and shit. Um, that's the one beat they miss with, with that um, story, but they do a good job with that. Um, but yeah, so like that intermission period is where I feel like the game breathes the most, um, and that's where it's like, okay, I can kind of fly around do some, like, like smaller fights, um, kind of get a sense of what the combat feels like, do, like, training and level up my characters and get new moves and, and, like, experiment with my move loadout. And once you hit that point, that's, to me, where the combat gets a lot more satisfying. Like, it's always very simple. Um, it's, it's, like, once you get the hang of it, it's not particularly hard. Although early on, it can feel very difficult because it's a very unique combat system. And so... Like, even their Ultimate Ninja Storm games do not quite play like this. So you have to kind of get used to the very, like, specific nature of what this combat system is doing. You can't really rely on the stuff you know from having played other games to get a handle on the combat. But once you get a sense of, like, how to balance your defensive options and the different kind of offensive things you have available to you, the different combo enders you can do... Um, I would really recommend people go into the options menu where there's like a tutorial like help list thing um, that will kind of give you more like explicit information on the options available to you in combat that they never tutorialize on. And so there's things like you can use the different face buttons to end combos in specific ways that the game never tells you unless you dig into those menus. So I highly recommend people do that. It takes like two minutes, but once you do it, it's like, oh, okay, that's what this combat system is doing. Um, once I got the hang of it, I really do enjoy the combat quite a bit. It's not hard, but it, it feels like the Yakuza combat system in some ways to me. That Most of the time, I'm just like playing the combat, trying to do shit that looks really cool. Because you can do shit that looks really cool. And I'm not really playing it for it to be hard or challenging. I just want to like shoot, shoot a giant Kamehameha and get like a big finish that shows the Kamehameha shooting out into space and shit like that that's really fun or like spamming spirit bombs and, and watching the fucking frame rate tank, because now that I'm at the end of the game and I mean, I have a lot of the late game abilities, you can just absolutely destroy the framing of this game. If you, if you want to like get your whole party to use like their most powerful attacks at like exactly the same time in a very small space and the screen just explodes and it's amazing. Um, that stuff is, um, fun. So I think if you're going into the combat with that mindset, I enjoy it quite a bit, but I get the complaints that people have that the combat gets tedious. Because if you're just mashing out, like, circle, 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 and then firing Kamehameha, and that's all you're doing in the combat, it will get very tedious for you. Um, but if you force yourself to mix it up and use different moves and stuff, I think it's a lot of fun.
0: And the game does not put its best foot forward on this in the beginning, because yes. the early mission where you go to fight Raditz, you have basically all you can do is punch 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 kamehameha and you have to fight raditz twice just as goku it's very it's very like they did not find a cool way into that fight i don't think although i do like that one of goku's first abilities is rock scissors paper um yes he's got a whole skill tree that
1: does like you get like rock scissors paper rock rock scissors paper paper scissors and then you get one where he chains all three of them together and it's very cool
0: because i don't think we've ever heard Masuko do adult Goku. John, Ken, roll! It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Great. It's, yeah. It's, there's <laughs> lots of great fan service
1: with like the different movesets, with the music, with like the weird, here's the fucking driving episode. And like you can, once you do that, you can just drive a car. Like if you want to. It's so great. It's, it's not fast. It's no, it, it, like, you, there's no reason to do it other than just be like, I'm going to drive the car and then you can. Cycle through the radio and play any song from the um, OST that you've already unlocked before. So you can just drive around to Chala Hechala in this dumb hover car that you can paint orange and level up by giving shit to Bulma. Like, there's a lot of stuff in this game. Like, there's a whole food system that gives you, like, bonuses um, and, like, weird materials you can find. And, and now that I'm in, like, the end game. This is, this is a lot like the Ultimate Ninja Storm games where, like, there's a lot of systems that as you're playing through the campaign, you're just like, why the fuck is all this stuff here? And then you get to the end of the game, and there's this whole other layer that if you want to engage with after the story, there's just, like, all kinds of crazy shit you can get up to if you want to. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll definitely make time for it once I'm done with my 2019 game adventures and all of that, uh, and it'll help me kick off 2020. But I do, I like, the, it definitely as soon as I started it and I'm like walking around the forest with Gohan, I'm like, this is, this is nice. It, it put a smile on my face. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have a, like a,
1: an actual like open world Dragon Ball game, yeah. like which is one of the things that this game does that I've no other Dragon Ball game has quite done other than in like very abstracted ways in like Legacy of Goku. Because there's a certain way in which the ending of the Majin Buu stuff with like the 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 spirit bomb that the entire planet helps like create there's something about like some of the stuff of you actually flying around that world and helping random people with side quests like makes that feel slightly like different like it it adds an impact to it of actually being able to exist in that world that i've never seen another dragon ball game kind of do before um so there's stuff about it that i'm interested for you to play it so we can kind of talk in more detail because i have
0: have a lot of thoughts about the game that i i want to talk about awesome Well, I hope I can get there at some point. Um, So in terms of my stuff, my stuff actually will dovetail nicely into our news section because my stuff is mostly, I just, I mentioned this on our Japan podcast last week, which I forgot to mention, if you haven't listened to our Japan podcast, you really should. It was really good. And the video version on YouTube took me uh, a very, very long time to edit. So please watch it. Have you watched any of the video version yet, Sean? Yeah, I skipped around it a little bit, because obviously I
1: wasn't going to listen to the whole thing, because that's the three hours of my life I already did yeah, talking you to lived you. lived it. Um, yes, but I, I skipped around a little bit. I'm very impressed by the amount of detail you put in, Jonathan. Especially because for people who don't, I mean, if you listen to the podcast, you probably like figured this out. But like, I basically got the live version of that version of the podcast, because you had an iPad here, and we were like, flipping through the pictures while yeah. we are doing it. Um, One thing I did like I stuck in my head that's like I have to watch this version because you didn't show it to me on the day and I wanted to see it um was the like 30 second clip of you singing stand up to the victory in karaoke and it's very good thank you um <laughs> yes if, if people listened to the audio version and don't want to obviously like you, I, you know, don't listen to the whole thing again in the video version skip to where that um video clip is because it's very good and i like it a lot did
0: you see all the video footage i put in of the onabashira the people riding the log down the mountain Yes, yeah, I went to go look at that stuff too cuz I had googled some of that on my own also after that podcast
1: yeah. cuz I was so fascinated. Like, I love I love that stuff. I love the weird like very specific traditions that individual Japanese villages yep. have. Um it's it's that's that's one of the most interesting examples of that I've seen. Yeah. So that's that was a fun one.
0: Yep. I uh there's clips of Japanese Lord of the Rings in there. Those are good. Mm-hmm. I I have my I have my Japanese Lord of the Rings DVDs right here. I need to watch them at some point and I'm excited to do that. So we'll get there. But anyway, while I was in Japan, I got back into reading One Piece. um, And I am reading the whole manga. And I am at chapter 436 right now. We're about to meet the Thousand Sunny, the second ship of the Straw Hat Pirates. And uh, yeah, that means I have read a lot of One Piece because I picked up again at chapter 100-ish. So I've read over 300 chapters in the last month um, of One Piece. I am now, Sean, I am at the point where One Piece is longer by volumes and by page count than Dragon Ball, though not by total chapters, because Dragon Ball did shorter chapters um, when it was serialized. So One Piece is very long. I'm still not halfway through. <laughs> I'm close to the halfway point, but I'm not quite there. Uh, I Well, I'm on my... Like... So, so you're saying that currently One Piece is two times the length of Dragon Ball? Yes. Basically, more or less. Oh, more than that. I mean, it depends on how you count it, but... Dragon Ball is 42 tankobon. One Piece is at 95, that's well more, like by page count, it's way more, if you go by total time serialized, I think it's just around there, but maybe not quite surpassed yet, um, because Dragon Ball was about 11 years, One Piece is in its 22nd year, so we're getting there, yeah jesus christ i know one piece is very long one piece is very good so i've gone through all of the baroque works alabasta arc which i do think is the best one piece thing so far that's the arc where they have vivi and you meet chopper and then they go to alabasta and and they fight crocodile it's great it's fucking that's one of the best manga things i've i've it's some of the best like fiction i've ever read it's just so good then you have the skypea arc which i also think is fantastic skypea is like Weirdly, a really good story about colonialism, and then it is also just a, a great kind of standalone One Piece arc. Um, and then I just finished all of Water Seven, which is where they then go to NS Lobby and they declare war on the world government. And like, that's one of the coolest things about One Piece is that this is it's it, it is so not a static shonen manga. In that, like Luffy says in the first chapter, "I want to be king of the pirates." And Eiichiro Oda gets down to business pretty quickly like getting to work on that like like he doesn't just keep saying I want to be king of the pirates with nothing to show for it like at the point I am in the series he has a 500 million berry bounty and like he has declared war on the world government and he's like one of the most wanted pirates in the world and I'm like that's I I think a lot of shonen manga don't have that much um dynamism with how their main characters like actually evolve in the world but one piece is great i've been talking about it on twitter i've been having a lot of fun um i'm loving it to death at some point i'd love to watch the anime but that's a big commitment so i am watching some of the movies and things like that because that's easier one thing they've done is across the movies and the tv specials they've made like a film version of almost every major arc in the series so you can just Mm -hmm. go like watch those as like a two-hour movie and some are better than others but it is still cool like you can see a lot of these moments and sometimes if they do it with the modern animation it's just gorgeous like i think early one piece tv anime kind of looks like garbage but the movies are nice and then modern one piece anime looks very nice so across that you can get cool versions of this if you don't want to watch hundreds of episodes of anime um that show has such a great cast it's it's worth listening to um but yeah i've been having fun that's it's a lot of manga sean Awesome. What else is
1: going on in the world of One Piece, Jonathan?
0: Well, this is our news for the day, Sean, which is that Netflix this week announced that they have greenlit a One Piece live-action TV series for a 10-episode first-season order. This is straight to series, no pilot. They're doing a 10-episode first-season. This is actually happening. This was actually announced... All the way back in 2017, I, I, I looked into the history of this. There's a studio, I think they're called Tomorrow Studios, I didn't write it down. They're also the people who are producing the Cowboy Bebop show for Netflix that stars John Cho, and they had gotten the rights a while back and like preliminarily made this deal with Netflix, but it is now official. A guy named Gaida is serving as the showrunner, uh, and Achiro Oda is an executive producer He did tweet out Like a little Handwritten note In support of the show um, So it's 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 with his Blessing at the very least I, I don't know how much His involvement will be I think he's pretty busy <laughs> Writing yeah. Writing chapter Sean last week Was chapter 969 Of this fucker That's a lot That's a lot of nice. manga um, Anyway And and yeah So it's happening It's real They are making A live action One Piece show This is completely official What the fuck? Is there any anime less suited (laughs) to a live-action adaptation than the one with the rubber boy and the talking reindeer and the dude with the really giant nose? Like, I do not... There is literally nothing in One Piece that I think could be done in live-action. Like, literally nothing.
1: Yeah. Because it is that thing where Cowboy Bebop, I'm not... like particularly interested in a live-action version of Cowboy Bebop. But a live-action version of Cowboy Bebop makes sense. Because because Cowboy Bebop is, you know, like paying homage to lots of things that were originally live-action. It's it's a sci-fi show in space. You know, that you can do that. Um, if we haven't had a good Fantastic Four movie yet, we can't do a live-action TV version of One Piece. I'm sorry, it just can't be done. Like, we're, we're not there as a people. Um, so, like, the idea... Because it's your main character. It's Luffy. Like, his whole thing is that he's, like, a stretchy boy. And he can, like, you know, stretch and, like, turn himself to a parachute and, like, crazy shit like that. Like, he's a... Yes. He's, he's a rubber That's what man. he says.
0: He's a gummingan. He's a gumningen
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's barely even a human being. Sean. And so the idea of you doing a live action in One Piece where the main character, like, the main thing he does... Is going to be one like really hard to portray on screen. Two requires so much special effects constantly if you want to do it right. It's like in three you're doing it on a TV budget. Like, are you maniacs? Why would you do this? It would be easier to do fucking Dragon Ball. It would this. be
0: much easier. Like, dra- like the Dragon Ball live action movie is terrible, and I don't think you. I, I don't think making live action Dragon Ball is a good idea. But you could. You could because I don't think you could do live action Dragon Ball Z. To be clear, I think you could do yeah. live action Dragon Ball in the sense that it is people doing martial arts. That's you could make the Tenkaichi Budokai movie. You could do that. Mm-hmm. You cannot with One Piece. You just can't. Like Sean, the part I just read in One Piece in in the Water Seven arc is where Luffy unveils his new power up called Gear Second, Gear Two. Where what he does is he inflates his legs a bunch like a pump, so he super pumps his blood all throughout his system and gets it really hot, and he starts steaming all over, and that makes him strong. And it's something a normal person couldn't do because it would explode their veins and arteries, but he's a rubber person, so he can do this. It's the most ridiculous shit, and it's literally impossible to do in live action. I mean, I'm just, I've got my One Piece planner right here that I got from Japan. So let's look at the crew members Chopper He would have to be CGI Brooke He would have to be CGI Frankie is a giant cyborg Probably CGI Um, Jinbei Have to be CGI Luffy Mostly CGI Nami and Robin I guess you could do normal Usopp I don't know what you do with Usopp Sanji smokes 100% of the time And if Sanji's not smoking What the hell is he? And then Zoro Yeah Zoro is like the most normal in a lot of senses except oh wait he does his his distinguishing characteristic is holding a sword in his mouth and talking which cannot be done in live action (laughs) it's so silly yes it's so silly and it's just I'm kind of fascinated I will watch the shit out of this when they do it because I want to at least the pilot like I want to see what the hell it is but like why in the wide wide world of anime is that the one you think you know what one piece is a cartoon that's fine this needs to be real yeah it's it's such a weird pick
1: like i think the only thing i could think that would be even more impossible would be jojo's bizarre adventure <laughs> like if you tried to make live action jojo's which i have actually now that the thing of it they have made a jojo's bizarre adventure movie that is supposed to be fucking terrible so someone has tried it in yeah. japan not over here um the idea of an American JoJo's Bizarre Adventure movie is utterly hilarious. Um, but yeah, like there there are a few things that you could go to. Like Naruto would be easier to do than One Piece quite, by quite a bit. Um, I, I'm trying to think of anything that would be like demonstrably more difficult to do than fucking One Piece, and I keep, really am not coming up with any. I don't think it is. Like they did, they did a Japanese Bleach movie that's actually I watched and is actually kind of okay. Like Bleach, bleach is totally doable. Yeah.
0: One Piece though. Mm -mm. I just can't see it I just I want to see Live action Luffy Yelling Gum gum rocket And see how we do it You know Um, If if they choose to do that I mean Honestly the answer would be Do something like Set in the world of One Piece Not with these characters If you had Like gun to my head Had to do it Also someone on Twitter One of our listeners Suggested Do it like um, Space Jam And they're just cartoons Who come out Into the (laughs) real world I kind of like that idea But I don't think That's what they're doing (laughs) The and, and that they have to play
1: uh, yes. basketball like do just do it completely it almost has nothing to do with, with <laughs> one piece it's just the cast of one piece one piece playing basketball with michael jordan just well or
0: back. i mean lebron james has been wanting to do space jam 2 forever i think this is the opportunity it's they help lebron james play against the yeah kids aren't into Looney tunes anymore you know what kids are into one piece let's, let's do see. it All right so we'll see you know Maybe it'll surprise us. I didn't think The Witcher was going to be good. The Witcher also does not have Geralt having to, like, stretch himself over vast, impenetrable distances. But, you know, it turned out okay. So we'll see. I did, Sean, just want to give a quick update, though. There's a lot of Hollywood trying to make anime into live action right now. And I want to go over a couple of them. Because Mm -hmm. I'm confused by all of it. Um, So Cowboy Bebop for Netflix That one is the furthest along They actually started filming it would have been out by now But I think on like day two John Cho broke his leg or something So John Cho who is great casting By the way for Cowboy Bebop that sounds fun Um, He was like Convalescing he will be he's fine They will start filming again soon so that'll probably be out Later this year but it was supposed to be out by now But that's definitely like that's It's written it's being made Um, Mobile Suit Gundam our our baby sean yep in 2018 legendary pictures and sunrise announced a deal to develop a live action movie and in march of 2019 brian k vaughn was hired to write and executive produce so that's underway legendary pictures obviously makes the american godzilla movies so they have some good relationships with with um, toho at least so they have kind of a leg into the japanese market I'm curious about a live-action mobile suit Gundam movie, because there's nothing about Gundam you couldn't do, especially with modern special effects. Yeah. It is very easy for me to imagine a very
1: good live-action Gundam movie, like, hypothetically. I think the difficulty is getting it made within the Hollywood system, and having it still be good is very hard to do. But there's nothing about the Gundam property itself that, like, pre... like, Like, inhibits the creation of a good uh, Gundam movie in the way that like One Piece it, or Dragon Ball Z it's like seems like that would
0: be basically impossible to do well Gundam it is not in any way hard to think of how you No, and Brian K Vaughn has done some very good stuff he's done some bad stuff too but like that is that is not that's that's a serious hire I will say that's not like a cut rate we pulled some intern off you know the block and they're gonna write our Gundam movie and we're gonna spend 20 million dollars on it that sounds like an actual investment so we'll see where that goes so, thumbs not thumbs up or down, but just like that could work. Um, there is a remake yeah. of your name in development written by Eric right. Heiserer who wrote Arrival, which is a good credit, and directed by Mark Webb, who made the amazing Spider-Man movies, which is a bad <laughs> credit. Um, and a, but, but I mean to be fair, he before that he made what is it, 500. Yeah, that days was 12 years summer. ago like,
1: now. That but that is that has got yes, to be the reason yes. why they hired Mark Webb, right? They didn't hire him because he no. made fucking Amazing Spider-Man. They hired him because he directed a rom-com, and, and Kimi No Nawa, your name, is a fucking yes. anime rom-com. So,
0: yeah, there So, you go. apparently, it's going to... This is the worrying part, though, is that they're going to adapt it into a Native American community in the United States, of which I don't believe Mark what? Webb or Eric Heiser belong to. So... No. Moving on. Um... That's a that's a I had
1: not like I knew that they're that they were like in pre production or whatever, like looking at doing a your name live action thing over here. I just assumed that it would just be they'd turned, like adapted to like American high schoolers. The idea of them doing it with a Native American setting seems weird. Is that I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't do it,
0: but I would want people from those communities to make that movie if you wanted yes. to do it, I guess. Um Akira is the one that's perpetually in development it's been in development forever Keanu Reeves was attached at one point so I mean everyone's been attached to Akira the most recent one is Taika Waititi had signed on which was probably the most promising version of that because Taika Waititi is very very smart Um, but it is now shelved again because Thor 4 was announced and you know that's I think even Taika Waititi would be like yeah Thor sounds easier that sounds more fun i'm gonna go to thor uh (laughs) thor we know can work in a movie akira eh, maybe not maybe not so i hope the akira movie never gets made because i think akira is pretty high on the list of do not do this in live action yeah that's
1: and and again that's one that hollywood has been trying to make for like literally decades at this point and it's been a bad idea for the entire time Um,
0: naruto sean i did not know this lionsgate lionsgate has licensed it um the last it was heard of was like 2016, so it is not in active development. But Lionsgate was working on it at okay. some point to do a Naruto movie. I think that was like Lionsgate in the in the heat of like the Hunger Games, um, like young young adult. I don't even remember all the Maze Runner, and yeah. like all of those those all. Yeah, the Divergence yeah. trilogy. And then all, of all that, that stuff shit. started flopping, Um, and I imagine Naruto was going to be kind of in that vein. Which, to be fair, like that's that is what Naruto is like, at least at the outset. Um, like, an anime version yeah, of, like, a YA I, kind of thing. But, like, uh, Naruto should not be an American movie? No. <laughs> no, like, like I don't want whitewashed Naruto. I just don't.
1: It would hurt. I just don't want to think about who the fuck they would cast no. as Naruto. No. Um,
0: and, and like, yeah, that whole thing would no. be a bad like, idea. Like, and, and I actually want to say something about the whitewashing. Like, because there is this interesting discussion with this all the time when this happens of, like, what is and isn't whitewashing. Um, and, like, I think... I'm going to say something controversial. I think people get too obsessed with it sometimes on some properties. Like when people were mad that Death Note had white actors in it, the American version, that's just, they took the story and adapted it to America. That does not really bother me, but like that happens with remakes all over the world, literally every day that you move it to like your country. And it's like, like that's just something that happens. That's not necessarily if they, if they kept the character named light Yagami and it was set in Tokyo and they had a white guy in it, that's whitewashing to me. Um, it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. the other way and then there's all sorts of things like John Cho is not Japanese in Cowboy Bebop like that's not that's not whitewashing but that's also like not it's not quite still the same thing like it's it's good casting and that is that matters but like I would also not be super offended if Luffy in One Piece is not like ethnically Japanese because no one in One Piece is like it's One Piece it's complete fantasy Naruto is Japanese. Naruto, there is <laughs> yeah. no other way.
1: His name is fucking Uzumaki yes. Naruto. Naruto is the name of the show, and, like, the setting is ninja villages fighting each other in, like, a weird, like, sort of alt-history version of the World Wars, basically. um, Like, the, you couldn't... You can't translate the fantasy setting of Naruto to, like, an equivalent American fantasy setting. Like, the conceptually, it wouldn't make sense. So, yes, Naruto would be an example where... There'd be no way to do it um, to cast a white person as Naruto without making it
0: like very explicit. That would be a case like um, Avatar: The Last Airbender, where like those characters are clearly supposed to be Asian. Um, Dragon Ball was whitewashed to hell. His name is Son Goku. He cannot be white; just he can't be. Um, There's things like that. I just I kind of wanted to because like this is clearly going to be a conversation as more studios are doing these, Uh, and sometimes I see kind of it painted with a blanket brush, and I think I don't know. Overall, I just don't think these should be projects is my... <laughs> but yes. Yeah. No. Yeah,
1: yeah, but I'm with you that if you adapt the setting... um, So like with like when they did the Ghost yeah. in the Shell one. If they had done the thing that everybody said they should have done, which is make a movie set in the Ghost in the Shell universe, but in America... And have different characters and maybe you maybe it's a similar plot line to the original Ghost in the Shell movie or like a plot line from the TV show or something that would be fine to take one of the plot ideas but they clearly should have translated it to an American version of the setting of like in that world in America because that would be cool fans of Ghost in the Shell could potentially be into that because we've not ever seen that before in that setting if they had done that, it would have been fine. Instead, they decided we're just going to do a straight adaptation of Ghost in the Shell, cast Scarlett Johansson as uh, Kusanagi, um, and there you go. It's just in Japan. it's basically that story, except for we put in some
0: bad Hollywood twists. And and that's right, exactly. Like like again, the Death Note thing. De- Death Note offends me because it's bad. It does not offend me because they recast it in Seattle and had American actors in it. You know, they they had a black L, which is I think cool as an American like adaptation of it um so you know there's there's interesting things they did there but whatever the bigger conversation um here's something interesting sean andy muschetti the director of the it movies has been signed on to two different big anime adaptations recently he was signed on to the attack on titan movie at one point this is another one that i think attack on titan Mm. is going to be the next akira that hollywood is going to be trying to make that for like 30 years and by the time they do it no one will remember what attack on titan is um and yeah. the other one is Robotech um, And this is recent It was at WonderCon last year hmm. WonderCon 2019 is when they confirmed They're making a Robotech movie I forget which studio this is Andy Muschietti was attached at the time He has since signed on to the Warner Brothers Flash movie So Andy Muschietti is just jumping around I assume collecting like paychecks For projects that will never get made Because that Flash movie Yeah, I can't wait till he signs on yeah, to the exactly. Get started, exactly. So. so who knows, but They want to make a Robotech movie, maybe uh, and f- how is Robotech even still a thing? Like, how is Ro- like, Robotech's
1: not even, like, an ethical fucking property to exist. For people who don't know, Robotech is, like, a weird, cobbled-together American show that took three different um, Japanese shows, um, most notably for me, Macross, which I've seen, but then other super-dimensional shows, um, and mashed them together into one weird Frankenstein show Rebranded as Robotech And didn't give any money to the people who actually made the stuff um, that, they're just, that they just stole um, So Robotech yeah. shouldn't be a thing And the idea of them making a Robotech American movie now um, In
0: the, the 2020s that we are now in Is weird and feels yeah. bad Hey, there was a Power Rangers movie two years ago So, you know, that's where we are But I think Power Rangers actually paid the people who made the original show. Yes. Yes. No. Yeah. Robotech Robotech's a bad situation. Um, Yeah. Finally, the only other one on this list that I think could work is Sword Art Online is in development at Netflix as a Netflix show. Um, the person they hmm. have writing it is an A plus pick. It's laita Calogridis who wrote Altered Carbon and then wrote the Alita movie with James Cameron. Um, and she, it, it, we haven't really heard about it since 2018, but she was the person they had writing it. That she's a great writer and has actually done the only decent recent anime adaptation in Alita. Um, and Sword Art Online seems like the kind of thing you could do a live action Netflix show about. Um, generally I would be more excited about these things as shows, not movies anyway, so not the worst idea in the world. Yeah, I can 100% see Sword Art Online adapting into a netflix style show pretty pretty yeah.
1: smoothly overall
0: honestly. my opinion on all these things is animated things should stay animated and more live action sh- things should become animated because animation is better uh and animation does not need to be live action to prove it's worth to you but if we have to do it um it, you know what at least one piece is a swing for the fucking fences and i'm excited to see how the <laughs> yeah. how they do that and who knows maybe they will have like some breakthrough in rubbery cgi technology and we finally get fantastic four because of that yeah, I mean, one thing I'm
1: thinking about Jonathan is what like has there been a like a very successful Hollywood at by which I mean like financially speaking is there like a huge box office hit I'm not thinking of that's an anime adaptation no. over here like what what is financially motivating them to do to like pursue these properties so hard? Um,
0: nothing in terms of what's extant. My guess is that for the most part, these are not properties that have been popular in America. Like one piece has a fan base over here, but one piece has never like hit dragon ball levels of international fandom. I think the goal is that like a lot of this is Netflix. It's legendary. It's it's companies that do a lot of overseas business and like have overseas ties. And I think the idea is Mm. one, like everybody wants proven properties, anime, these are all proven properties as anime. These are all popular in territories around the world, Japan, China, South Korea, places like that where like Netflix has a presence, would probably like to have this stuff. Um, that's, that's kind of my idea, I, I think, is probably why you're doing it. Um, I would not be surprised if the Disney live-action renaissance, if we want to call it that, has something to do with it, of like Disney has been so popular in adapting their animated classics. I think people saying well people like animation into live action so let's do this and it has international appeal Um, and some of it is just Hollywood is lazy and Hollywood is just they're burning through so much IP now they're burning through other countries IP I I think that's what it is but no you're right I mean the big ones of the 2000s are Speed Racer and Alita and I like both of those movies quite a bit they both bombed spectacularly exactly yeah because I just feel like every time one of these movies does get
1: made It's kind of like the video game movie thing. Like, every time they've tried this, it's clear why they're failing. Then they come out and they fail. And then a few years later, they try and do it again without trying to fix any of the things they've done that have caused the last, like, dozen of them to fail. And we just repeat the cycle over and over again. And and it just feels like video game view movies have been doing that for a long time, and it just feels like we're entering the dawn of that happening with a lot of anime stuff, with like Ghost in the Shell and Lita being the most recent examples of it. Yeah.
0: So who knows? Um, I think these will be successful for Netflix. I would imagine that Cowboy Bebop show will get, if it's like even halfway decent, will get attention. Um, the way like the the Witcher was a big hit. I do not believe Netflix is stupid. Statistics about it where they said 76 million people watched two minutes of it Okay that's not a stat that means Anything Netflix but I believe It was a big hit I think Cowboy Bebop could I think mm-hmm. One Piece will get attention Because it's so crazy But past that I don't know So we'll see Alright you want to yeah. talk about some TV That is is actually extant Yes let's talk about the real TV show so we have on the, on the docket The Mandalorian we have uh Watchmen and we have The Witcher. Where would you like to start, Sean? Um, I think we should probably knock out the Mandalorian because we've got one episode to
1: talk about with that, and then we have two whole T V shows okay. to talk about with the other one. So ones. the
0: Mandalorian, we left off at episode seven. Big cliffhanger. We were loving it. The Mandalorian is the best modern Star Wars thing. Uh the finale Sean, mm-hmm. I would say, only intensified that. It's so good, man.
1: Oh, holy shit. So again, I haven't watched it since it um, aired, which is like early to mid-December, so it's been a while for me. But I did, I mean, I watched it back-to-back, basically. Like, I watched it that day, and the next day I was like, I'm just gonna watch that episode of Mandalorian again, because
0: it was really fucking good. Because it's a really damn good episode of TV. Um Quickly, I should say, there will be spoilers for everything we're about to talk about. So if you haven't seen The Mandalorian, you can look at our time chart in the show notes and skip to whichever show you want to listen to about. Um, but yes, The Mandalorian finale, I mean, I think it hit pretty much every emotional beat it needed to uh, beautifully. Um, it, it's wonderfully directed. It's so funny. Taika Waititi, just perfect fit into the Star Wars universe as a director. We already knew he was as a voice of a cool droid. Um, Yeah the the only thing I had any kind of quibble with in that episode was I don't know if the face reveal worked for me 100% and other than that perfect finale near perfect season of television and I think The Mandalorian is the best show we're talking about today and should be the model for a lot of American TV going forward like I thought of it a lot while watching The Witcher
1: yes yeah like because that's i enjoyed the witcher overall quite a bit as a tv show but every time i was watching an episode in the back of my mind i was thinking man if this show had the balls to do what the mandalorian did it would be so much better um because the thing that the mandalorian has like the, the weird like it's weird to call it courageous but it's like weirdly courageous in the market that it exists in to just say no every episode is going to be as long as it needs to be turns out as long as it needs to be for most episodes of TV is about 30 to 40 minutes, somewhere in that range. It doesn't need to be an hour to like 90 minutes long, which is what most Netflix shows try to aim for. Um, and it's like, hey, here's the plot of this episode. There's no... It doesn't drag. There are no real B plots or C plots. Is never cutting away to another like cast of characters somewhere else to, to mess around with them. It's just like, nope, you're with your characters moving through the plot um, and... It's super tight, and you get to the end, and it's done. And it's, like, awesome. And that's true of the season as well. That's, like, the whole season. It's eight episodes, super tight, like, gets in, gets out, does what it needs to do, and it's over. It's, like, I mean, obviously, I'm super excited for Mandalorian Season 2. But I feel like they did such a sharp job structuring this season, doing the Doctor Who style thing of you open with a couple of more, like, plot-heavy episodes that set things up. Then you have a bunch of fun stuff in the middle that gets to be their own standalone episodes that slowly piece a couple of things together, like introduce a character here, introduce a concept there. And then you have a two-part finale with more heavy, like, dramatic plot stuff that wraps up the character arcs. It's, like, such a tight, sharp, good structure for TV that almost no
0: TV show today does. And Just it's fucking like awesome. Just, like, not a second across this season was wasted. We were laser-focused every episode had a clear theme it had a clear point of view it had a clear structure there was no fat on this thing if anything I could have used a couple more standalone episodes in the middle just because I loved them so much not a criticism just like leave them wanting more is a good note to have right Um, and it left me wanting Mm -hmm. more in the best way not like I feel like we didn't get enough but just I could use more of it because it was good and because like not every the only characters who are in every episode are the Mando and Baby Yoda and and even Baby Yoda is only at the very end of the first one so but other than that Mm -hmm. like the characters are used when they need to be used and I also think that's an upside for the actors like I guess you're not getting paid for every episode but if I'm Gina Carano doing TV um, I'm only in I think three episodes of The Mandalorian but in those three episodes I get to be a focus and like every scene is meaningful and there's no fat where they're like cutting away to me for a gratuitous sex scene or some random exposition that doesn't matter or just some stupid bullshit just because we have to use this actor. It's, like I'm a focus of this episode and like every time there was an actor in an episode they were a focus they had meaty moments and so by the time you get to episode seven and eight where they pull everybody in you really love these characters even if some of them were only in one or two episodes because they were a focus and it comes together it feels so real and the POV has been so consistent with the Mando that like that finale just had so much to draw from and then you know written by Favreau directed by Waititi um just delivered on it so perfectly with all of the characters and and all of the the big action moments and I think the emotional payoff with um the Mandalorian and like his people and taking on Baby Yoda as like his ward and all of that um just beautiful and Giancarlo Esposito Mm -hmm. oh my god fucking oh my god because yeah, because he
1: was only in sort of like the tail end of the penultimate episode of the season. So it was only at the very end that we got um, Moff Gideon, Giancarlo Esposito. That they, they, You know, they definitely watched Gus in Breaking Bad and were like, we need to make Gus a fucking Moff in Star Wars, in the Imperial Remnant. Um, and that's more or less like the character he goes for. And it's so good oh my fucking god he's so much fun like the whole like big standoff where he's just like you know giving them this big fucking like like speech and threatening them while they're held off in the like cantina thing it's just he's just you know it's it's clear that jean carlos is having a huge amount of fun getting to stand there with a the yes. fucking cape and say like evil shit it's it's you know it's 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 it is Star Wars Gus in that he gets to be like blatantly villainous evil and and Giancarlo Esposito just gets to play it without having to like be duplicitous or two faced in all the things that that Gus also is in the more sort of like you know psychological realistic version of TV with Breaking Bad here it's like no this is this is an <laughs> evil motherfucker um that just wants his his baby Yoda and and he's just going to stand there yep. in a black cape um with the and get out of his fucking tie fighter and then come in with the tie fighter at the end and try to take them out. Oh, it's so good and it's so
0: much and, fun. you know, the only disappointment in the finale was like, oh, they killed Moff Moff Gideon and then of course the kiss off is, oh no they didn't. Oh no they didn't. He's going to be the big bad. No, and I'm they like, didn't. yes, yes, this show this show fucking gets it, Sean.
1: Yeah, and, and the last scene of this episode when Grandma Moff uh, Gideon... Or just not Grand Moff, like Moff Gideon gets out of the TIE Fighter by cutting it open with the Dark Blade or the Darksaber. Like, cements this as... This show is basically now the successor to Clone Wars and Rebels. Because it's got Filoni and it has the Darksaber, which is a thing that's in Clone Wars and it's in Rebels. It is basically... Um and a really old lightsaber made by the first Mandalorian Jedi that is then passed down um in this one Mandalorian clan the man, the who the 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 first time you see it it's in the hands of a Mandalorian character named Previsla in Star Wars Clone Wars Previsla voiced by John Favreau which is something I didn't realize until I rewatched the show and I was like this guy's voice is so familiar. I cannot place it, and I'm like, and then it was around the time Mandalorian was happening, and I had the name John Favreau in my head. I was like, oh my god, that's just John Favreau. I'd never think about Jean, John because John Favreau is usually not like a voice actor and stuff, so it never had occurred to me. And it's like he plays this like recurring villain in Clone Wars. Then the dark saber gets passed down to Sabine, um, who's one of the, the main characters in Rebels. And then you know Rebels leaves off before the beginning of A New Hope. We're now post Return of the Jedi, so at some point. The Darksaber goes from the hands of Mandalorian rebels to the Moff who was presumably on the Imperial, the sort of like governor of the planet of Mandalore. And now he has the Darksaber and it's like all like, if you're just someone who doesn't know any of that shit and you're just watching the show, it's like, oh my God, he's got this crazy looking fucking sword. That's cool. If you're me, you're watching that. It's like, oh, holy shit. That's the fucking dark saber one in live action, which is cool to see. Two, it's in the hands of Giancarlo fucking Esposito while he's, he also has a fucking black cape on, just an extra cool image. And three, they even use the exact same sound effects from Clone Wars and Rebels for like the ignition in like the because it's got this like very sing songy kind of sound effect associated with it that's very different than a normal lightsaber. Like the attention to detail of, na- of nailing the dark saber from those shows is so good. And is like the most I don't know how Disney is letting them do this, because it feels like they are in their own weird pocket with Star Wars. It's just like, hey guys, like we're just gonna keep on doing this like the last good stuff in Star Wars, which is the stuff that has like the direct lineage from George Lucas with Clone Wars. We're just gonna like keep that torch going on. And like for now, like the Darksaber to me, like kind of represents that as it's being like passed down from one show to the next. And I'm very excited to see what that then says about Gideon's role in the world and his relationship to the Mandalorians, because it almost sets up a Thrawn-esque, like he has this weird sort of like, you know, British Imperial-esque fascination with their culture and like a desire to like own and like consume their culture in a way, which is to me kind of what that thing represents in the hands of an Imperial um, that I feel like is like the hat that Jean Favreau and Dave Filoni are sort of like tipping, that's like, or like the wink they're giving. That's like, this is the direction we're heading with this character to kind of continue the trend that this specific item in the Star Wars universe has been used before and kind of keep it going down and develop its sort of iconography. As a big fan of the stuff that they've done before with this stuff, um, I am that was a big moment for me at the end of the season. I can tell
0: and I'm I'm very excited just hearing you talk about it even as I'm the person you were talking about who just thought hey cool sword but that's that's why you know it works is that we were both like jazzed by that moment for different reasons and on different levels but that's the that's the center you want to hit with something at this point in the Star Mm -hmm. Wars universe you know Um, and clearly they can do it and and you know I love All the stuff we learn about Mandalorian culture in this season, but particularly in this last episode where you get kind of the full version of the flashback of his parents dying, you learn that this Mandalorian was a, what do they call it, like a child
1: oh god i i immediately want to say child of surprise that's the, witcher. That's the witcher and now i can't get that it's out of star my wars head it's the star wars child
0: of surprise kind um, of thing where they're like i said ward earlier yeah. like basically like the mandalorians ward and so he was adopted into mandalorian culture and then you have the big scene with the the mandalorian woman down in like the basement where they they get we get another kind of fun lore dump and just all the mandalorian culture stuff is so cool and evocative and it really feels like that's going to be a focus going forward that i think Think this character is like i love that this character is like you know he is he is mandalorian as shit like he is deeply into this look like th- this is something he is a true believer in he like is very you know religious about keeping the helmet on and all of that and i think that being a plot going forward of like him kind of owning this heritage um is a great idea and a, a great ending to the season um You know to to kind of reinforce that and that he's going to kind of take baby Yoda under his wing in that specific context not just as a person but as a Mandalorian as a child of Mandalore you know. Yes yeah and it definitely it's
1: something it's a really good beat to leave those characters off on and it's like basically like how they conclude that relationship is revealing this is you know there's a lot of reasons why mandalor the mandalorian cares so much about baby yoda but this is a huge one that we don't didn't know yet which is that yeah like in mando's eyes baby yoda is him when he was a child because it doesn't matter that baby yoda is this weird little wrinkly green <laughs> baby with pointy ears he can be a mandalorian the same way that mando can be whether or not he was born on the planet cuz one thing i'm curious to see if they establish or expand on in some way is whether or not the the sort of group of mandalorians that he is with is like a weird not like offshoot but they're like you know a smaller group of mandalorians that are living on the outer rim like i wonder if this mandalorian has ever even been to mandalore or even like most of these mandalorians have been because there's that moment in this episode where um the like armorer forge mandalorian lady um, They're talking about, about Baby Yoda and his mysterious abilities. And she says, like, I have heard of, like, sorcery like this in the past. of some sort of sorcerer cult called the Jedi or something like that. And, and she, the way they word it is very much like a New Hope style, like, you know, ancient blasters and hokey religions kid kind of thing, where it wasn't so much the, like, established Jedi lore we have now. And it's more like, this is weird force. Like, most people don't seem to know what the force is. Because if, they, if these are, like, Mandalorians that spend a lot of time on Mandalore, it would be a little bit weird that they wouldn't know who the Jedi were considering, like, the Darksaber is this, like, ancient artifact from a Mandalorian Jedi. The Jedi visited the Mandalorians all the time. The Jedi fought a very famous, like, giant war against the Mandalorians um, in the Old Republic sort of era that's still canon. So, like, I'm hoping what that means is I think this should be a cool concept is that these are, like, he is, you know, never really been to his, like, sort of adopted home in a way. He's never, like, he's not been in, like, the heart of that culture. He's only ever been with these groups on, like, the Outer Rims where stuff like the Jedi wouldn't be well-known because you're, like, in, you know, ass-fuck-nowhere Tatooine or wherever, you know. There's no notion of things going on like the larger galactic politics. I hope that that's something that they like pick up on as a thread for the next season because I think that'd be interesting as he like tries to figure out and like reverse engineer what the fuck the force is, what the Jedi war were, all that stuff. If he slowly like works his way into like the inner areas of the galaxy that are like
0: more sort of well-known in some ways. In the, the that Star Wars would be universe. very, very cool. And, you know, sky's the limit. They've got so much potential and possibility. Uh, what did you think of the moment where we see Pedro Pascal's face? Um, I think probably
1: more or less the same that you do Um, in that like I think they probably could have done it a little bit better or chosen not to do it at all. There's something nice to me about like I kind of feel like they needed to do just like to get it over with at some point because I think it would be it's like I there's something I like about it not being that big of a thing in a weird way. That's like that you just get to see his face. And it's like, well, yeah, you just get to see his face. Um, and I think there's something that, like, I see the value in that. I think that I also would have seen the value in doing it where it's like, maybe he takes the helmet off, but you, the viewer, never see his face. You're, like, only looking at IG or something like that. I think both versions have merits to it, and I probably would have preferred the latter. Um, but it didn't
0: It didn't strike me as something, like, bad or that they shouldn't yeah, no, have done. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say bad or shouldn't have done. Just, like, it was the only thing in the episode that I kind of quibbled with where... I definitely felt like I liked the idea of him taking the helmet off for IG and I think that was like a good moment for him. I just felt like I wish we hadn't seen the face because like especially at that point the mask reads so strongly and like the sort of anonymity but also personality that's imbued in that anonymity of the character is so powerful that there's something about him just staying in under this iconography that i really love but yeah I, I kind of it almost feels to me like there was something in the contract of like we have to show pedro pascal's face once just to prove that it's him and you know we can at least put to rest now like fan theories like it's not actually him or whatever um but it did feel a little bit like a little more perfunctory than i thought it was going to be um but you know not to take away against anything else they do it's still like if anything my reaction is just that i'm i'm so amazed of what a great character creation it is without ever seeing the face that when we do see the face it almost feels like a little bit of a deflation because they did such a good job of building that character just through body language you know yeah and i i kind of feel like the deflation is sort of what that moment
1: is I mean, he's trying to do is show you this like it doesn't matter like what he looks like underneath the helmet because he's just of course he's just a guy like what what else could he be like it would have been great if he took it off the helmet and it was just like a big man-sized yoda <laughs> under there and that's why he cared so much about baby yoda um which I've, I've been obsessed with this idea that someone had floated on twitter this is probably around like episode four or five but that like Everybody else that sees that doesn't know anything about Mandalorian or anything with that like all the other like random characters that see him with the baby Yoda just assume that he's a like adult version of the thing that's in the baby cart because why would they think otherwise that that's just that's just his son or whatever in this (laughs) like little trolley and I'm so obsessed with the idea that every other character just assumes that's what he looks like under the helmet. Um, then it would have been very funny if they had that. would have been that.
0: great. I also am looking forward to Mandalorian Season 6 or whatever where we have Baby Yoda is grown up and he's in a little, like, three-foot-tall Mandalorian armor.
1: I do have to say something about this, because um, this, like, happening basically in conjunction with the profoundly disappointing The Rise of Skywalker um, it, it has made me feel like... One of the things that with that I felt coming out of that movie, or I guess phrase it, one of the things I did not feel coming out of that movie was that Ray was somehow going to go like rebuild the Jedi Order or something. I feel like in a way that like I kind of felt with Luke at the end of Return of the Jedi, with Ray, it's like she walks away at the end of that movie into the like deserts of Tatooine and I'm like she says she's just gonna like hang out with her friends or something like there's no sense of that she has this renewed purpose to rebuild some sort of jedi order especially after all like the shit that's happened um because the jedi have fucked up like massively two times in a row and caused twice in a row like galaxy threatening giant bullshit that's like it would be weird for her in that like context to go make the new jedi order that honestly they should just have the new jedi order be built like you know, five hundred years in the future, by teen baby Yoda, um, and just have he be the one eventually that rebuilds the Jedi Order and just leave the sequel trilogy stuff behind. And like, if that's how they want to contextualize how the Jedi come back eventually, I am a okay with that. And it's like, here's Yoda two, um, a new Yoda makes a new Jedi Order. I'm good I would be it. good
0: with that too. Anything else to say about the Mandalorian? Uh, Carl Weathers is amazing and perfect. um We've already sung his praises, but oh he God, is. yes, um taika waititi should direct a star wars movie but so should everyone else who worked on the mandalorian um just just it is the best disney star wars thing by leaps and bounds and miles including the last jedi which we like but is compromised by the shit around it um the mandalorian is perfect and pure and makes me feel very hopeful about the future of star wars because at least there's more of this in it Yes, I'm very excited for Season 2 of The Mandalorian. I'm very happy that um, we're getting
1: new Clone Wars in like three weeks Um, now. It's like February 22nd, I think, is when the new Clone Wars stuff starts happening. So I'll have some other good Star Wars stuff to hold me over until then, but... It's going to be a bit of a wait for Mandalorian. Not season too
0: two. bad though, because it is coming back this fall. Like this is not one of those where they're taking a year off. They they've already started shooting. I think like they were well in underway with this, so it's it's going to be in 2020. Um, whereas like The Witcher, when we get there, is going to be 2021 before there's more. Um, and right. Watchmen probably never. So yeah, let's go ahead and move on, Sean. Let's do Watchmen first because I think it's a little more distant for both of us. Um, and then I want yes. to do The Witcher because it's most recent for me at least, and I think for you. Um, yes, yeah, because I watched The Watchmen before I watched so, The Witcher. That's that's like a weird tongue twister, yes. twister
1: <laughs> sentence I just so, said. So
0: Watchmen, this was the nine episode HBO miniseries. I think is the best way to say it. Um, created by Damon Lindelof of Lost and The Leftovers. Um, Made by a lot of the Leftovers people It's a lot of the same writer's room It's a lot of uh, Nicole Cassell was the lead director on Watchmen She was one of the directors on on The Leftovers Um, A lot of those people One of the new notable things is it had Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing the music Which was A plus That was so good We'll talk about that But yeah Watchmen Super fucking interesting If there has ever been a swing for the fences Watchmen is a swing for the fences In that it is a full-on sequel to the original uh Alan Moore Dave Gibbons graphic novel and very specifically the graphic novel like not the Zack Snyder movie this is full-on squid happened the the graphic novel as Lindelof said is Old Testament it's accepted this is a sequel with a new main character named Angela Abar um played by Regina King who is phenomenal you get some returning characters like Gene Smart as uh Laurie Juxbysiak um yeah. Which is Laurie best, Blake, which i think mind. they did just so no one had to say G-g-g-g-g. um yes, yes. um you also uh uh spoilers again we're going to be spoiling things dr manhattan in the later part of the show uh and some oh, of the returning right. yeah. characters um but yeah it's it's this watchman is set in the present day but it's a present day that looks very different because the events of the graphic novel Watchmen happened um it is a very good very rich piece of speculative fiction a lot like the original novel it is a mystery it unweaves in really interesting ways I think it's got very Lindelofy episodic structure in that every episode pretty much has a clear perspective if not um, a unifying character which a lot of them do as well Uh, and this Watchmen is sort of unified by the idea of race relations in America because it starts with a depiction of the Tulsa race riot and the destruction of Black Wall Street. And then the rest of the show takes place in Tulsa. There is a white nationalist group that are all wearing Rorschach masks. Um, We find out things about the original Hooded Justice. I thought this was a great show. I didn't love the finale. There were quibbles I had with it. I don't think it was terrible or anything, but I thought it was the weakest part of the show. But I do think this was if nothing else like such an audacious swing for the fences and so consistently brilliant in in a lot of moments like it was really fun to watch week to week i think the best episodes which are probably six and eight are some of the best tv i've ever seen um it's a really interesting show
1: yeah i think my my thoughts more or less mirror yours um in that it is it is an episode that, or it is a show that sort of like lives by for me, it's individual episodes and like so many of those individual episodes. Um, Episode six, this extraordinary being, I think being easily for me, the best one of the bunch in my favorite, Um, like those individual episodes when they're well-crafted, they are extremely well-crafted. It feels like some of the things they borrow from the Watchmen is like this interest in sort of like formal structuralist experiments in storytelling. Um, which the Watchmen does like to a virtuosic degree for comic books. Um, and here they do a lot like really interesting stuff with match cuts and like weird flashbacks and playing with color and things like that um, in, in experimental ways. There's like, you know, it does not look like your average TV show and it is not structured narratively like an average TV show. It feels like it takes those things um, some of the, like the, the interest and in symbology from the Watchmen which um, I think they do a really, really good job of sort of replicating some of those stylistic elements from the source material. Um, I think, yeah, some of the core themes and ideas are like provocative and fascinating. And again, when they like are nailing it like they do with episode six, it is so good. The only thing that's a bummer is that like, it it is very much a, the journey is much more interesting than the destination kind of thing. And that like the finale is a very conventional finale for a very unconventional TV show and it kind of unfortunately it has in like with the distance i now have from it it has like deflated a lot of my like enthusiasm for the show just because it is like there's there's so much good stuff in that middle section and then at the end it just kind of like wraps up and you're like it's it wraps up in a very like kind of neat tidy way that is so like okay this is this doesn't feel like it was like it feels like you brought someone else in to make the finale or something and there are multiple moments early on in the finale where I thought it was going to go in one direction that was like oh yeah if you did this it would be fucking great and then they don't go that way They instead of what they normally did which when they hit a fork in their sort of storytelling potentials they would take the one that's the more sort of bolder but more kind of risky path um, and they almost always did that throughout the show and then in the finale it felt like every time they hit one of those forks they tended to go down the very, like, easy kind of path to kind of wrap the show up. And so that's a bummer. But the stuff throughout it is so good that it's still a great TV show. It just would be, like, an all-time great TV show to me if they had nailed that Yeah, finale. and it's
0: it's tough to talk about because it's not like I think the finale is bad or anything. It's It's more that, like, it feels way too pat and neat. Neat is the word you used. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's interesting to me because it's... Damon Lindelof doesn't really usually write like that like The Leftovers is so open-ended and like like I expected more of sort of a Leftovers style finale I know you haven't seen that show Sean but like it is you know The Leftovers is a show that starts with a giant mystery and makes it very clear you're never going to get answers and I think that's the right response to that Watchmen has to give some answers like there, there is a podcast that HBO did with uh, Damon Lindelof for Watchmen that I would highly recommend people listen to because Damon Lindelof does not do a lot of interviews these days, but when he does, he's one of the most thoughtful people out there, and it's really cool to hear, like, you know, all we said about episodic structure and, like, the comics. Well, Damon Lindelof talks about how, like, he got into writing because of Watchmen, and he read Watchmen serialized so like as a monthly comic not as the full novel and like that's how he got his sense of episodic structure and that's really clear on Lost with like the individual character flashback setups it's really clear on Watchmen um and that you know so he understands this book really well and one of the things he wanted to do was was have a mystery have a conspiracy and have a big payoff in the end and I do see where that comes from like I do see the like the series of choices that leads to the finale being as neat as it is because the book watchman is also one that like has a bunch of threads out there and at the end of the novel it pulls them all together in a really clear way it's just that i feel like the way alan moore does it like narratively it is very tight but it it feels so thematically like messy in a good way like unsettled you don't quite know how to feel about it. It leaves a ton of big questions. And I think that's where I feel like if I had one big criticism, I think Lindelof and company got a little too in over their skis on the plot mechanics and kind of forgot. It feels like episode six is where like a lot of the big thematic nets are cast out where they like where they should be for the end of the show too. And I don't feel like they pull those in in particularly interesting ways in the finale, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think what it is is like, you know, the Watchmen graphic novel in its sort of finale section has, one, the reveal that Ozymandias already did the thing he's threatening to do, which is like an all-time great moment in the history of superhero fiction for certainly, if not fiction. And then the beginning of the next issue, which is just like five or six like splash pages of people just dead um in new york which is still like for me one of the most like shocking moments in fiction i've engaged with um because it's so powerful um and like forcing you to go through and flip each page and like watch the destruction of what Osmandis has just done um and then it proceeds to end ultimately with the statement that um this tv show likes to bring up a couple of times with ozmandias character which is that nothing ever really ends that's like there's the that while the story may have wrapped up from our perspective, um, as the reader of the book or the watcher of the TV show, um, the the story of like life doesn't stop. Things always go. Time always marches forward. And so this desire to have a culmination, like a true conclusion of events, is like a weird sort of psychological imposition that humans put on reality that is not factual. That is not real and dr manhattan is the only character that fully understands that because he doesn't see time the way we do and it's like that statement by dr manhattan is one of those just like pokes the balloon or whatever of like the ending of that story and the tv show completely misses anything that feels like either of those two moments it feels like each time you would have had a moment that would have been like that instead it is more like the villain just sort of monologues and it's over, right? Like, it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not... It's not... Here's, like, the big shock twist. It's like, this is not what we expect. This is not a clean wrap-up. This is something that is very messy, even if it is thematically very coherent and very pointed. Um, For whatever reason, the TV show just doesn't feel
0: like it was it knew how to pull that off um like i said i just think it gets it's a little too much of a puzzle box like here's the best example for me the most fun thing watching watchmen every week is the jeremy irons short movie (laughs) that we would get and those Mm -hmm. are fucking brilliant every single one of them where jeremy irons is off on some weird planet and he is doing i mean at the beginning we don't even know he's in space and it Mm -hmm. is a weird like almost skit with ozymandias it is so good it is so funny jeremy irons is so like fully engaged i think it is such a good presentation of that character it is so batshit weird but when it ultimately all gets tied together and he comes back to earth in the finale which i enjoy all of that up and like i love the reveal that he was the gold statue the whole time like that, that who that was there in the garden like things like that like that's so cool but then you have to get to the plot question of like well why was he there the whole time what was all of this about and it's not a thematic thing. It's not a thought-provoking thing. He's there in the finale so he can do the doodad on the on the computer to make the fish fall from the sky and stop the 7th Cavalry's evil plan, right? Like, that's what he's mm-hmm. there to do. So he's there completely for a plot function purpose. And because of that, like, from a plot standpoint, the only reason is he's in space is so he can't be there to do those things earlier in the show. And it becomes it kind of becomes the snake eating its own tail in that it's all this kind of plot cul-de-sac without I think something interesting to do with Ozamandias in it because I think the end of the the finale the finale being Laurie Blake arresting him I don't like at all I just think like that's that's so no that seems that's that's awful. awful it's unresolved it's like you can't bring Ozymandias to justice because that's kind of the point of Watchmen is that he is above these things because of what he did and who he is. And that's like a really important thing. And just reversing the end of the graphic novel doesn't make this feel more final. It makes it feel like it doesn't have an idea of its own, you know? Yeah. And I think for me, like one of those moments early on in the
1: finale that made me realize that like, Oh, maybe they're not going to be able to pull this off is I got so excited when that fucking rocket lands on Europa or whichever moon he's on, um, and he gets inside it, and then it becomes clear that like he's gonna be like turned into the gold statue, um, and then he gets turned into the gold statue, and I thought that that was it, that that was the end of his story at first. I was like, oh shit. That's so good that the whole thing that like she like like he came up with this whole fucking ridiculous scheme that he's been working on for the whole season of trying to signal Lady True to like come rescue him and like all the weird mechanics involved with that and that the culmination of that would be that she sends a rocket that he thinks is to bring him home but she actually just sent it there to turn him into a gold statue that she's just going to put up in her fucking like courtyard in her penthouse like apartment or whatever. That, that I thought that's what it was, and that that was the whole ending of his story, and that was it. I thought that would be so fucking it w- I perfect. agree 100%. That would be the perfect ending for that character, the perfect development for Lady True to, to as like the newer version of Ozymandias and to leave him as a gold embossed statue, um, just sitting there for eternity. Like that would be a perfect resolution for that character. And then they thaw him out. And it's like, and then he just sort of walks around and he's talking to the other characters. And like from that point forward, that character feels, Ozymandias feels so just like perfunctory. Like he doesn't feel like he's the same character anymore. Because the character that we saw for the rest of this show was a fucking lunatic who would not be able to have a normal conversation with any of these people at all. And he's walking around and talking to them and coming up with this weird scheme to fucking rain frozen squid on people and stuff. It's like... This is awful. Like, who, why, why is this how you're ending the show? And then, yeah, culminating ultimately in a moment that I think both Robs, Laurie Blake, and especially Looking Glass of most of the stuff that was interesting about those two characters, where they just knock out Ozymandias and go arrest him, I guess, and that's the ending of those characters' stories. It's like, this is so... Chitzy like it's like what is this Resolution like how how Is the same TV show that We got the choice to make Hooded Justice A black man um, how, how is this show The same show it was something that, that I just had a hard time kind of grappling with at the, In that finale why they Would have made a lot of the
0: choices that they made because it felt So incongruous with All of the stuff leading up to I it I completely agree with all of that uh, 100% I think the other side Of it is that I think it gets way in over its skis with like figuring out how they're going to tie Lady True, Dr. Manhattan, the 7th Cavalry, and Angela all together into the finale. And you kind of just get plot mush where it does all come mm-hmm. together. It answers all your questions. It's kind of what people wanted out of the Lost finale once upon a time. It hits all the checklists, but it doesn't really do anything interesting with it. Like the 7th Cavalry is completely perfunctory to the end of the show and the end of the show winds up being not about race at all like at all like Angela isn't even really a factor in the finale until the last 10 minutes which I like the last 10 minutes I think those are the right last 10 minutes to a different version of this finale but like Mm -hmm. the rest of it just it doesn't feel like it's her story anymore it doesn't feel like will reeves had much to do with it at all i I mean i love the last scene with will reeves again those last 10 minutes with her in the theater with him and then at home with the egg perfect but i just thought everything else like it doesn't i it doesn't feel like there was there was something to kind of if we started in tulsa with the with the black wall street event i feel like the ending had to have something to do with that and it didn't have to be the kind of ending where they solve racism, because that would be impossible. But just where I feel like there was a bigger reckoning with it. Um, and I'm kind of of two minds with, with how Dr. Manhattan plays into it. Because on the one hand, I think episode eight, A God Walks Into a Bar, one, is phenomenal pun of a title. You, you yeah. know they oh, yeah. gave Angela mm-hmm. A Bar that name so they could do that pun. Just, I know that 100%. And I think it's a great episode. It's it's such a good presentation of Dr. Manhattan. It is such a good piece of television. But I also think Dr. Manhattan kind of weirdly overwhelms the finale in a way that like feels like it completely changes the direction of what this show is about. And so I'm kind of of two minds about that. I I like that they did Dr. Manhattan because the Dr. Manhattan episode is just so good. But then the finale, like this shouldn't have been about taking dr manhattan's powers it's like too big it's too silly it's too far away from what i thought the show was about
1: yeah and i think there's a couple of things there one is that i think the watchman graphic novel does a really really good job of while it is much more grounded than the average superhero comic book especially around the time that the watchman graphic novel came out in the 80s um, while it feels more grounded most of the time, it still feels like a world where superheroes exist. The TV show does not feel like a world where superheroes exist to me. Like, and that's something I never kind of fully got over. Like, I never really kind of bought the Sister Knight and stuff like that. Like, I never fully kind of. And I, partially because I don't think they ever did a good job of justifying why Angela does dress up as this character from a exploitation VHS. Like, I thought it was like a cool source of, like, an idea of, like, oh, this is where the character comes from. But Angela's relationship to that character doesn't fully sell me on the idea that she would dress up in this costume and go fight crime. Um, The only one that I think, like, looking glass, they do a pretty good job with him and kind of setting that stuff up and doing it with that character. But generally speaking, the world they live in feels like maybe a world where superheroes once existed, um, which I think is kind of part of what they're trying to do. But it doesn't feel like a world where... ...superheroes are there anymore... ...and that like... ...so it's one of the reasons... ...why Dr. Manhattan feels so out of place... ...is that it... ...I don't think they ever really do a whole lot... ...to make it feel like this is a world... ...where a man who's literally a god... ...who glows blue and has his dick hanging out all the time... ...can just walk around and like... ...sees time in a weird way and stuff like that... ...I don't think that that stuff matches with... um ...a lot of the rest of the stuff they do... ...other than episode six... ...where like honestly... I kind of almost would have preferred an alternate universe where the TV show we got was the Hooded Justice TV show because that's the time where they ground it in a specific pulp aesthetic that is to me the most successful um, reflection of the thing that the Watchmen graphic novel does grounding something in a pulp aesthetic, but then showing us like the grimy details behind it. So it's like that episode, f- like evoked a similar aesthetic quality to me as like the Minutemen sections from the original graphic novel where it's like, here's your justice league people all like getting together for the photo op. And then behind the scenes, the comedian tries to rape the, like the, the woman on the team Um, like that thing that the watchman does episode six is the only time I really felt like this TV show pulls it off and s- so outside of that context them pulling in dr manhattan i just don't know if the show was like totally equipped to grapple with the implications of having dr manhattan as a present character interacting with other people in the world that they established specifically this tv show like that's a lot especially to throw in only into the last two episodes of your show yeah
0: no i i totally see that i think you know the the superhero thing didn't I didn't think about it a lot while the show was airing. I like, I thought on a production design level, they did it perfectly. Like all the costumes look very much like Dave Gibbons. Like these are kind of lame costumes on purpose. Like night owl doesn't actually Mm -hmm. look very cool. Um, whereas like the Zack Snyder movie tried to like cool them all up and make them look like modern DC heroes, which is not the fucking point of Watchmen. The point of Watchmen is that people who dress up as superheroes are weird fucking perverts. Um, yeah, and they're like they were intentionally designed
1: after a bygone era of superhero designs when the Watchmen graphic novel came out because
0: they're all based right. on golden age and silver age characters, not yeah. Bronze Age. And characters. I think this Watchmen, on a again on a costume production design level, nailed that. But then the story just doesn't make a lot of room for it. Like, I think the last time she suits up as Sister Knight is like in episode three. Like, it's just not a, a a very big presence in the show. So we don't really see... Like, we hear about that world where cops are dressing up as superheroes more than we see it. And again, the finale and the entire endgame does not involve that in any way, shape, or form. Like, the police having masks and all of all of those really provocative ideals... They're just not a part of the finale. They're just not a part of the overall plot, and I think that's what makes it feel so distant. Like I don't doubt that they could have addressed all those criticisms you're saying, Sean. It's just not. It's just not in here. It's just like that's not the pl- point of the plot. In part because we only know the plot is Doctor Manhattan-centric at the end, but obviously Lindelof and company knew that throughout. And it like if you were to watch it again, that's very clearly there because it has to be because that's what we're building to but that's why some of these things feel like afterthoughts like a lot of the things that I think people thought were most interesting about the show are kind of they wind up being more cursory on the sidelines than than I think we thought they were because in the early going Dr. Manhattan is distant and and we think he's gone you know yeah and in like for important context for
1: the way that I watched it since I watched it after it all aired so I watched like one to two episodes a night for, like, four to five days in a row. Um, I also already knew that Dr. Manhattan was in it. Like, I knew that Jeremy Irons was Ozymandias just because I had, like, heard some of those things before I'd started watching it. So, like, I was actually kind of primed because I also knew which character was going to be Dr. Manhattan. Like, I had kind of, like, gotten that scene spoiled for me. Um, So, like, I was primed to look for stuff hinting at it. And there is some stuff there, but I was actually kind of surprised... There's, like, I feel like if that was... If this is what you're going to build to, you would have something that's a little bit stronger building up to it. And they really kind of don't. Um, Because, yeah, like, knowing that that Doctor Manhattan was going to, like, sprout, basically, from the husband character at some point near the end of the show, is just like, oh, yeah, I guess there's, like, maybe, like, a weird... Sort of, they talk about, like, an accident a couple of times about him. That was, like, I guess that's probably the setup. But other than that, there's not a lot of, like... Oh she actually was in love with Dr. Manhattan the whole time or something like that There's really not a lot there that they do Well let's
0: talk about some of the things the show does really well Um, Regina King Regina King just is one of the best actors on the planet I am so glad she just got this full awesome showcase She's really good in this character I think mostly Angela is a really interesting character And if that didn't work the show wouldn't work So they nailed that yeah, no, like, and, like, just across the board, like,
1: a, every performance, I think, is great. Like, it's it's a really well-cast show. Every actor brings, like, there feels like they're A-game to it. Um, And her, in particular, as, like, the protagonist and the focal point of the show. Particularly in that kind of, like, early to middle stretch where she's, like, trying to piece things together. Like, she's a very good... Sort of like detective lead in like her like trying to figure out who the fuck um her who we come to know as her grandfather is and all that stuff like she does a really good job of being that character that we kind of follow through step by step um which is not usually like the sort of sexiest role for a character to play because it's not like oh here's you know. Uh, Jeremy Irons just gets to be all ridiculous And chew the scenery She doesn't get to do that the way that a lot of the actors do But as like the sort of straight man kind of type character At the center of the madness Around her she does such a fucking great job Of like holding things together She does
0: get to act opposite Gene Smart And in episode 3 Gene Smart Leans really hard on her And then Regina King gets to go Oh and like, like be like Mock like scared of her And it is now the best gif on the internet Um it's so great. Mm-hmm. Gene Smart as Laurie Blake. We may not love the way the character is used in the finale, but that is a great interpretation of Laurie Juzbizic, and Gene Smart is so fucking good in this show. Yeah, that's, I think...
1: Yeah, they, they, it, it is an interesting character to be like one of the characters to bring forward. Just because I feel like Laurie slash Silk Spectre is one of like, the lesser interesting characters from the graphic novel... Um, which I think is one of, like the few things about the graphic novel that I think I have legitimate like criticisms of is some of the stuff with the female characters, with especially with Laurie. Um, but like the vision of sometime in the future, she just becomes this just bitter fucking doesn't give a shit lady um, who's now like hunting down other vigilantes. Which again is like a if you are going to make a different. If you're going to like not a, like a season two of this show, but another show from the seeds of the show planted, I would take a Hooded Justice show. I would also take a like Lori D- Blake special agent for the FBI hunting down um other vigilantes because that scene, the sort of flashback scene they do where she um catches whatever the like the the whole like weird bank heist sequence um that is such a good window and it's one of the few times where I felt like the show in its modern setting captures some of the absurdity of the superhero thing mixing with um, a more grounded reality that Watchmen does so well. Um, That's one of those few moments where I feel like the show kind of coalesces on something like that. And a lot of that is her performance really just like god i just want to see her just make fun of people's stupid fucking costumes oh, forever so like i would just take a whole tv show that is just that.
0: episode three is the is the one where we meet her and it's the laurie centric episode and it's framed by her in one of the dr manhattan phone booths which i think is one of those great little pieces of world building in this show and she's mm-hmm. giving she's telling him the joke it's so good like like you're right i i want like the i want them to do like an hbo tv movie about like laurie blake genius smart is so good yes and and it it also does feel like a very true extension of that character to me like because so Mm -hmm. this is a long time later this is a full 30 years she has lived a full adult life like you you get bits and pieces of the backstory that she did continue vigilante-ing with night owl and now he's in prison and she isn't and yeah she would be a bitter kind of asshole because she 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 did not have a great life from what we saw you know and uh yeah. i believe it 100 i like it again i wish there was more sort of payoff to all those things she is but um it, every moment she's on screen is a fucking joy so that's great um tim blake nelson as looking glass is phenomenal and his episode is so good and another one that you talk about character endings i thought he should have just died at the end of his episode like when the seventh Cavalry arrives Mm -hmm. and kills him like because he does not do anything of value really in the finale other than kind of stand there and be kind of mildly helpful um but i just thought this this vision of this person who was like he was directly touched by the squid attack he is completely paranoid he learns it was a false flag attack and and chooses kind of to believe it anyway and then gets killed that kind of would have been the perfect arc for him and and also he had the best costume that fucking every scene with him in the mask is amazing and that's one of the coolest and most disconcerting superhero masks i've ever seen yes no like
1: looking glass is one of my favorite characters i think it is like a you know evoking a lot of elements of the rorschach type character but going in a very different direction with it um that i thought was like that worked really really well the performance is so good and i agree with you that like his episode which that's episode five right um yeah little fear of lightning yeah because those two back to back little fear of lightning and this extraordinary being are i think that's my favorite period of the show um that like fully diving into what makes this dude tick why he wears the weird like tinfoil like what it's like you know the watchman universe version of the tinfoil hat um, in him being traumatized by the psychic blast, which that was a good detail. Um, that is a thing that is like easy to kind of forget that happens along with the squid attack. Is like there's this big psychic blast that happens, so it doesn't just kill all the people in New York City, but it like kills or horribly like psychically maims you know hundreds of thousands of people in the surrounding areas. And so that was a really smart small detail from the finale of Watchmen that they honed in on to build this guy. Um, that I thought was really cool. And yeah, like his interactions with Angela are great. It's just that fucking they should yeah they should have either killed him or this is another area where it felt like the finale had two paths to pick and they picked by far the worst, um, which was if Osmandius was going to make it back to Earth, then Looking Glass should have fucking killed Osmandius before Osmandius could have stopped the villain's plans, which is the other thing I thought was going to happen is they're all in that fucking room together. Um, in Karnak, Osmondus is doing his plan. To fucking, I think in that sequence, Looking Glass learns that this is the guy. Like, yeah, like he is the dude that did all that shit. Like, he saw the video before, and now it's like, okay, yeah, no, you are the dude. How does Looking Glass not just immediately fucking kill him? Is something that I did not in any way. It seems very out of character then, for him
0: to just stand there, which is what he does in that scene. They just have Tim Blake Nelson stand there, and it's really weird.
1: Yes. And so it's one of those areas where it just feels like the finale doesn't know what to do with this character. Because like the in a confrontation between Looking Glass and Ozymandias is a really interesting scene to think about. About like I think they do the right thing on Ozymandias' side that he would be just totally dismissive of this dude. But looking glass has no like response to that at all, which feels like a big missed opportunity. Um but other than them kind of flubbing that, um, yeah, that moment where he's like, where he's going, like the the cavalry are coming back uh, to like attack him and you think that he's uh, sort of decided to throw all of his shit away and then he goes and gets it again from the trash. Like that's a great moment and would have been a great moment to leave that character off
0: on because it felt very true. Yes, um, you know, I think there is a little bit of thematic muddling with, with how they handle all of that that I don't know how you quite avoid, but just that, they both sort of tie the big squid attack into nine eleven, but right, yeah. they also make it a false flag because it was that is established in the Old Testament of Alan Moore's Watchmen. It was not a real squid attack, but nine eleven was. I I don't think the show is should be encouraging nine eleven trutherism, and I don't think Damon Lindelof is trying to encourage nine eleven trutherism, but it is a world where like. And, and you know part of it is that it's a dark mirror of our world and I get that but just that and and while I love episode 5 overall the whole sort of joke allegory where they have instead of making Schindler's List Steven Spielberg made a movie about the squid attack I viscerally responded poorly to that I think because mm-hmm. replacing yeah. a Holocaust yeah. movie with a false flag attack movie is a bad message because then you get into Holocaust denialism, which is bad. But also, like... I think Steven Spielberg still would have made the Holocaust movie, guys. I think, like... like, yes. um, like, And they talk about, like, the little red girl in the black and white movie. Like, Schindler's List is black and white to evoke actual Holocaust footage, like, in the movie Night and Fog. It's not black and white just to be sad. And, like, the little girl in the red... Like, that wouldn't happen in the Squid movie. Like, it's all that's the most uncomfortable I probably ever got watching Watchmen, where I feel like they... Because I feel like they handle the race content really well. And I just thought when they verge towards, like, 9-11 trutherism and Holocaust denialism, and I don't think they really have an answer for it, that's the most uncomfortable the show made me.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. It's one of those, like, awkward things. Because this also, like, happened a little bit when they brought X-Files back for those two sort of revived seasons or whatever. That's just, like conspiracy theory stuff post 9-11 is like just materially very very different than it was yes. pre 9-11 like it just reads so differently um and it's yeah it's it's a hard like nut to crack of how you avoid it in this tv show it because like you said in the 80s graphic novel like it is literally a false flag attack like that that is that's the the setup you've been given Um, and I think they probably lean too hard into playing that off. Um, and I agree with you that, that, the, um, weird Schindler's List thing really stood out to me as like a, as a show that does such a good job generally with like small world building details, like the Dr. Manhattan phone booth thing. That was one that just felt no, like what, like this just doesn't, it feels really ill considered, um, from a lot of different perspectives, probably the least important of which is that like it's like the scenario you're describing is in no way equivalent to Schindler's list. So it just doesn't right. make sense. Like it, it's not a like equivalent period in like history in perspective. It's just weird feeling. Um, yeah. So I, I agree with you that with that stuff and, and some of the like Adrian Veidt were like the way they frame the here, I'm sitting down in front of like the billion TVs and watching the video of Adrian Veidt, like, revealing all the information about the actual false flag attack. There's a little bit too much 9-11 trutherism like, in there aesthetically that that it, it feels awkward. It feels like they didn't think through all the implications and maybe they could have gotten away with like just not leaning so hard into it yeah, as they
0: did. I, you know, yeah, I wouldn't have leaned in then that hard into it. I think if you leaned into it less hard, you didn't do the Schindler's List thing, and then you did have some kind of direct payoff with, like, if he did kill Ozymandias at the end, I think I'd be more okay with it. But especially because mm-hmm. it's so unresolved. Um, so let's talk about Will Reeves. First off, Louis Gossett Jr. in the modern-day Will Reeves is so good. He's so good. Like, he, mm-hmm. he gets to deliver, like, the denouement of the show at the end um, about, you know, wounds need air to heal and it's a beautiful moment that would be even more beautiful if the rest of the finale had anything to do with the rest of the show but you know topic for another day it's still great um and then episode six this extraordinary being where obviously we have a different actor playing will reeves as a young man um who has escaped the tulsa race riot the the uh, black wall street event and is now a grown man in new york city and becomes hooded justice after being lynched um it's a brilliant it's the kind of brilliant subversion that makes me think Alan Moore would kinda like this show if he actually watched it, you know? Because it is so true to the spirit of Watchmen, which Watchmen is is punk. Watchmen is fucking rebel. That is the same kind of thing, you know? Yes,
1: absolutely. And like the like the the sort of deafness with which they walk around. The established fiction of Hooded Justice as a character. And nothing in this show contradicts anything you know about Hooded Justice. Um, all the things that are pretty heavily known or implied to be known are true. Um, like his relationship with Captain Metropolis. But like a lot of the like speculative stuff that is stuff that clearly in Watchmen of him like maybe he was this weird bodybuilder dude or whatever it was that like washed up with a bullet in the back of his head like that stuff that was clearly presented as speculative in the original graphic novel sometimes in like the ancillary material um, at the end of some of those issues that stuff is like no that was bullshit that was people just making it up and they like bring it into the world of the show and reference some of those things to like to let you know that yes we are aware that these things were said in the graphic novel but clearly they were said by things by characters that would not have known whether or not it was true or not and was presented as such so we'll tell you that and then here's our version of like what actually happened um and so much of it links up so well with like the imagery of the noose in the hood and and mirroring that with um lynchings And, like, the him putting makeup around the eyes and the justification that it's, like, you can't let people know that you're a black man um, because, you know, society won't accept it because they wouldn't. um, Because we didn't have black superheroes back then, like, in fiction. Like, it just didn't happen almost ever. Um, So, like, that stuff, it is such a smart nuanced read of all those things to bring together what is like a, a way, 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 way a million times percent more interesting version of let's look at the true history of Hooded Justice than anything I could imagine. Than like Alan Moore would have done because he didn't do it, right? Like this is a much better take on that character than anything I could have possibly thought of. um and And it is to me by far my favorite part of the show. Like I think that episode six is... Just like structurally fascinating with like the different sort of like time periods they're playing with. And it's all played through these like weird memories that Angela is experiencing through her taking the nostalgia drug. Like all of the just like the weird shots and edits and cuts they do to communicate this distorted, compressed memory of a person's life moving through these traumatic events is so starkly powerful. Um, I think that like whatever issues other areas in the show have this episode I think is basically perfect. Yeah,
0: because the strongest threads of Watchmen the TV series are about black identity and legacy and the notion of America erasing black identities and legacy and starting with the Tulsa Massacre. And and that was a as clear enough an idea of that in American history as exists, where there was this very economically development, a uh, developed black community. There was Black Wall Street. The white people of Tulsa would not stand for it. And in a day, basically burned it all to the ground and murdered all these people. And then we erased that from our history textbooks. And a lot of people learned about it for the first time watching Watchmen on HBO So it is literally an example of black identity and and value being erased and legacy being shut down. And then you have this character, Angela, who doesn't really know her legacy because she hasn't been allowed to know her legacy. It is still there, though, because trauma does get passed down through DNA. It gets passed down through your genes. She, She lives with that. She re-experiences it and finds this other hidden history about her grandfather, who actually kickstarted the entire superhero revolution that Watchmen is about. And he was black and not allowed to be himself in in two directions, both black and um, at the very least bisexual. Um, and and yeah, that's that's what it's about. And then you have the beautiful payoff in the finale with her talking to him in the theater and the line about wounds needing air to heal and. My biggest disappointment with the show is that the overall plot ended up not having anything to do with all that because that is all so good and episode six is the nexus of that where it all comes together and it is like whatever other problems the show has structurally in the end this is still like the smartest piece of of live action superhero storytelling on race you know like the only other com- competitor mm-hmm. I think would probably be Black Panther. And I think episode six of Watchmen, you know, goes in even more radical directions with that. Um, and it's, it's, I, I don't want to compare them. I shouldn't say more, but like, you know, cause I think they're saying very different things, but you know, this is, this is American, you know, identity myth making about African Americans in a, in a profoundly interesting, compelling, challenging way. Um, and, and, don't take my word for it. Like there's a lot of really great writing by, by black critics out there about this episode that I found tremendously moving and thoughtful that I would go seek out. Um, yeah. Yeah. And one other thing that I think that
1: that episode does is it's framing of that period of like the golden age superhero, but more like the, like the pulp fiction, like the shadow kind of stuff, which is more directly like what who justice feels pulled from in the graphic novel and and this like one like those a lot of those things sort of like pulled from or like it's that thing of like like the sort of like cultural appropriation kind of aspect to them that that's always been there of like toying with um black identity and and like concepts of injustice that would have been much more appropriate centered on the black community But I mean, we're talking about like the 1920s and 30s when those stories were super popular, so that obviously was not happening. Um, But them taking, be like, well, no, like, this is what this is actually about. Like, these are the real injustices and the most potent injustices that were happening in America when these stories were being told. And those stories, those fantasies about superheroes were not being told about the people experiencing the greatest injustice in this country at that time. It was about white people um like the, the one you know major exception to that is that a lot of them were you know young jewish kids in new york um like that's how superman was created but even then like you know black characters were not present in comic books and broad pulp fiction for decades um certainly not in a thoughtful manner for more decades um and not regularly in a thoughtful manner yet so we're like still working through that dynamic and trying to understand these, these stories we tell ourselves about justice, um, and doing the right thing, making society better, fighting for the people that can't fight for themselves. Um, and, and yet we never tell those stories about the, the people in our society that are most at risk, that are most harmed on a daily you know, basis. And so the reframing of this, that story and the whole superhero genre effectively in this world being rooted in the traumas and violence exhibited on a black person as opposed to like the thousands of like white revenge fantasies that were happening with those kinds of characters at the time um, is to me one of like the smartest things that this whole show does. And, and it's one of those things that feels most in concert with the kinds of interesting things that the Watchmen graphic novel did with the superhero comics. And it's like, that, like I, I could never ask for anything more from a Watchmen TV show than what Episode 6 does. Like, it does exactly what I would have ever, like, in my wildest dreams, wanted a Watchmen TV show to do. And the things it takes on, both in how it expresses it and, like, an experimental... Uh, Structural fashion and it's storytelling And then also the themes it's doing So thoughtful and caring about The superhero genre and what it represents And what it could and should represent for people um, In a better world Like that's what I would want from new Watchmen material I don't know if There's a lot in the rest of the show that ever Really does that for me but episode 6 Does it and I would have never ever dreamed That there
0: would be a single episode of Watchmen TV Show that could do that. Yeah absolutely And you know as I'm thinking about it because when we get to The Witcher, we're going to get into this. I have some specific, like in my mind, how I would like re-edit The Witcher. With Watchmen, I, I in my mind, I think if I had a wish for the show, I think I, much as I love the Doctor Manhattan episode, I would, I would give it up so that we could episode six should be the climax i think of the Watchmen tv series like Mm -hmm. if it were a nine episode season i think episode six should be episode eight and i think the finale should be dealing with what we learn in this one um or something like that and i think it should be more about i think the show should have been about dueling conspiracy theories and like on one hand like the squid thing which was a conspiracy but in one sort of sense but the other conspir the, the the vast insidious conspiracy in this Watchmen is not one person pulling the strings like Ozymandias. It is the history of the United States engaging with and enabling white supremacy in order to sustain itself, and that is what we learn about in episode six. That's what Will Reeves uncovers: is this vast insidious conspiracy of racism, which we know is real, you know. And I feel like the mm-hmm. finale should have been about, in some way, uh. uh A confrontation with the seventh cavalry where angela is able to expose that and kind of use what she's learned not to solve racism but to try to shed light on that conspiracy and i feel like that's kind of where i thought we were going and that's not what the finale is about um and then i think you could again have the same like last 10 minutes i guess in this case you wouldn't have the whole thing with the egg and dr manhattan but like at least the final conversation with with grown-up will reeves and that beautiful line about how wounds need air to heal would feel like the right ending to the show um because that episode six is so because i'm guessing every single person who worked on this show sean would tell you episode six is the best one you know and like yeah because that's the heart of the series and i think it should have reflected through more but even if it didn't still amazing as you say in our wildest dreams, a Watchmen TV series would never get to that level, you know? Yeah. So, yep. Um, Interesting show, often great show, sometimes disappointing show, but man, I think when, when they announced they were going to do this a few years ago, Sean, we didn't think it would be this compelling, right? Oh, no, no. I mean,
1: especially before we knew um, all the people attached, it was just like, HBO's thinking of Watchmen something, and we're like, No god no please don't Um, And then they're like but we'll get Leftovers people to do it and then you were like Yeah it's okay and I was like sure if you Think it's okay then probably I haven't seen Leftovers but that probably will work Um, But even then like I think This like what the finale is Is like a very Good version of like What I would like Hope the Watchmen TV show to be Like realistically speaking it's like that's Like where the finale is at what the show, the register the show normally hits at is at a level that is like far beyond what I would realistically ever hope a Watchmen show to be able to achieve. Um, Before we. Just because Watchmen is for me one of those few sacred cows I do legitimately have. And it was something I didn't fully realize until I watched a couple of episodes of the Watchmen show and I was like, this is good, but is it Watchmen good? And I, and I had this moment where I was like, man, I really do, like in my heart of hearts, hold Watchmen up pretty fucking high personally um and it wasn't until you get got to about episode five I think episode three by like armor started cracking it's really like the looking glass stuff and then this extraordinary being them like okay yeah
0: no these guys fucking nailed it like they did it this is this is I really think well Damon Lindelof is also one of those people Sean who holds it as like the most sacred of cows and speaking mm-hmm. of that should we talk about all the amazing ways this show just shits all over the Zack Snyder movie because it is <laughs> it's near constant at certain points like they have all the cutaways to like their american horror story parody which is really a parody of the Zack snyder movie like the big the scene where they do the big fight with hooded justice in the convenience store as part of the tv show is just the most hilarious parody of Zack snyder's entire shooting style and everything and like it's so pointed like damon lindelof will not say anything bad about the snyder movie in public he'll he says nice things about it but like it's very apparent what they're mocking there. Right, Sean?
1: <laughs> yeah, like, there's no... I mean, they do the, like, the slow-down, speed-up shit. Like, the like, or do just, like, bones breaking. Um, because, like, it wasn't until I, like, they did that scene that I remember It's like, oh, shit, that's right, that is what that Watchmen movie was like. And, like, I had just that flashback to that utterly horribly unnecessary fight scene that had Night Owl and Silk Spectre. They were like in an alley and they just beat the shit out of these people, like break their arms, and it's like, you know, the most like graphic version of a fight scene in like a Batman Arkham game where you're just like twisting limbs out of their sockets and shit. Like, oh my God, this is not what the Watchman is like at all. Like you don't like you you see people explode from Dr. Manhattan or get shot by the comedian, but you don't see like this kind of weird like gratuitous like very like minute violence like physical violence happening on people um and yeah they definitely nail that like you know not so subtle jab at the the stylistic habits of that zach snyder Watchmen because they do show. it
0: a couple of times in different ways and there are there are more and less subtle versions of it um I was half expecting at some point them to do a sex scene scored to hallelujah just to like fully complete the, the mockery because it's, it's a pretty constant refrain in the show and I, I find it, I yeah. find it interesting. It's, it's funny um, to a movie. I don't even hate. I, I think that's probably Zack Snyder's best movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Like i like, I like that movie just
1: fine, but some, you know, there are some things that deserve yes. to be poked. Fun oh, at 100, percent sure. Yes.
0: Um, so anyway, Good TV show. Let's move on to another one, Sean, with The Witcher on Netflix. Uh, This show is an adaptation of the Andrzej Sapkowski uh, novels, um, The Witcher, not the video games. So this is a weird case where this is an adaptation of something that already has a very, very famous front of mind pop culture incarnation. And I think the biggest challenge that the Netflix show faced, I think, is, is overcoming the games you know because we already have this adaptation mm-hmm. but what they have going for them is that the games are a sequel to the witcher saga whereas this is an adaptation of it so this show which was run by uh show run by lauren schmidt Hissrich, is an it's eight episodes and it is an adaptation of stories from the first two witcher short story collections the last wish and sort of destiny presumably season two will start getting into the main five novel saga which i think starts with blood of elves is that right Yes yes so they'll probably get into that next season but this is all based on the short stories so we have eight episodes as you described on the show a couple weeks ago Sean it basically has three prongs where we have Geralt in every episode doing basically a straight adaptation of something from the short stories. sometimes they embellish sometimes they cut down but it's always rooted in the stories then you have all of Yennefer of Wengerberg's backstory which is outlined in the novels at various points uh, and Siri on the run after the fall of Sintra, which is basically where the novel saga starts. This is all sort of edited together, even though for the first couple episodes we're presenting things from like literally hundreds of years apart. Um, yeah, I think you and I were both a little worried about this show because, yeah, uh, like just for full context, it was this show exists because of Game of Thrones. This is why Netflix bought the rights. They wanted mm-hmm. their own Game of Thrones. I think the finale of the Witcher was very clearly a studio mandate make a game of thrones episode
1: but yes. for the most
0: part this is a surprisingly faithful and not just faithful in the sense that like to the letter of the books but like i think lauren schmidt Hisrick and company get it they clearly get what the witcher is and at its best this show put an awfully big smile on my face i think because you talked about your opinion a couple weeks ago on the show sean um, I pretty much align with what you said. I think everything with Geralt is fantastic. I think the short story mm-hmm. adaptations are great. Henry Cavill is the is just perfect, which I did not expect, but he's great. Um, I love their version of Dandelion Yaskier played by Joey blah, 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 something. He's got to be um, he's great, and I love all the ways they adapt the short stories. Uh, I think the Yennefer stuff gets good after a really rough start in episode two. Uh, and the series stuff is almost 100% superfluous, but I like how it all kind of comes together in the last two episodes. It's, I think, a structurally messy show in places, but I think the middle stretch of the show, particularly episodes three, four, five, and six, all of those are great. I think that four-episode stretch is fantastic. I think seven is pretty good, and then eight is a mess and is not a good end to the season. But other than that, I liked this season quite a bit.
1: Yeah, and those are those are my exact thoughts. That when they are just doing the short stories, it's very good. Um, with like maybe like I think episode one is probably the weakest in terms of how it adapts a short story, mostly because the short story they pick, the Lesser Evil, I think is like a really hard one because it's like we really like dense and very complicated, and I think they kind of get a little bit in the weeds about like all the shit with the like prophecy of these girls born in an eclipse and all that kind of stuff that's like hard to deliver, I think, in like exposition, and there's this moment where like, this is this is a choice to to lead with this short story. But I think when they get to the end of that episode, they they start kind of getting it. Um but especially once you get to episode three, where episode three is the one that, that adapts the first short story. It adapts the Witcher. Short story, The Witcher um it's the striga short story that was also made as like a cg like sort of mini film almost for the original witcher game as well this is one of the most well-known stories from the collection um like once you hit episode three i think that's where the show fully kind of hits its stride and then yes once you get to episode eight episode eight is the this is the game of thrones episode and i enjoyed it fine but it was like at a, such a lower like this is schlock, and it's okay as schlock um, in episode eight, but it is not. It doesn't hit the things about the Witcher that I really like. Mostly because episode eight just kind of presents the the events of this battle that are kind of mentioned in the books, and like a lot of the details of the battle are are things that are mentioned in one of the books. But it's more like, oh yeah, this is where Yennefer was for this period of time, and this crazy shit happened when Nilfgaard invaded. But you don't actually, you're not in the middle of the battle, which is. Kind of what most of the universe stuff is adapted from is other characters talking about or Unifer relating those events. But Jennifer is never really a POV character in the stories. And so whenever they kind of have to fully do the Unifer stuff, it feels like you get a real hit or miss kind of thing. Um, but other than those, when the show is doing what the show is good at, which is what the show is doing for most of the time, I think it is really good and is kind of like with The Watchmen. It's much, much better than what I would have expected then 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 we are on record as expecting multiple times like looking at trailers and stuff for the show they really understand the core of a lot of these stories they definitely nailed Geralt as a character and when they hit like some of my favorite short stories like they do in episode four they like nail those stories so perfectly um that I was I was a very happy camper watching this show in that whole I
0: absolutely was um yeah my big problem with the finale just to say it is like One it barely has Geralt in it no the show's called The Witcher I'm sorry I don't want to hear the arguments you just you have to have Geralt in your finale more than that you have to Um, and and the big battle that eeps up most of the episode has exactly one character I care about even Game of Thrones as bad as some of the late game battles in Game of Thrones are they never make the mistake of having no characters i care about i am invested in the people on screen in game of thrones the problem with that battle is it is just way too abstracted we've never met an elf guardian we have no idea who these people are most of the people with yennefer are very bland and boring and i do not care about them and yennefer's arc in that episode is also just way too abstracted for us i think um so it's a boring and and pretty bad finale uh but it's the worst episode everything else is better i think i kind of agree with you i think the first episode i like that they did the lesser evil because i think that's a very compelling short story for like the morality of the witcher universe to kind of establish that um but i agree it's it's the problem is that it's so reliant on novelistic dense exposition and the only real way to deliver it is through dialogue so you have this big chunk of conversation between stregobor and Geralt. That if you miss any of it that episode makes no Sense and at the same time like because I Was also trying to think if I knew nothing about The Witcher would I understand this show and I think emphatically no through the First two episodes I think the first two episodes are Kind of bad at like introducing The universe because they Don't even really make it clear what Geralt's job Is until episode three which I think Is a mistake Um, yes And like so there's just a Lot of dense complicated stuff but Episode one has a killer Ending with the the establishment of why he yeah. is the butcher of Blaviken, uh, and I like the world building around Sintra and Siri having to leave because the way that all comes back later on, especially in episode seven, is a really good payoff. Um, but I, I overall, I just I think the first two episodes are structurally really messy, where I think the Siri stuff does not intercut well with the Geralt stuff in episode one, and I think it's all kind of con- even to me. I've read the short stories; it's confusing. I can't imagine if you had no knowledge how confusing those that first episode would be and then I think the second episode the Yennefer stuff is really rough it's the it's the roughest stretch of the Yennefer story and I think the Geralt story winds up feeling a little thin in that episode and then I think with episode three episode three one the way it intercuts between Geralt and Yennefer has a really clear thematic heft to it and so it's good inner it's good mm-hmm. like it makes both stories stronger so I like how that's cut together and then in four five and six all of the interactions and the intercuts are pretty direct and like make sense sometimes the series stuff feels superfluous but it's it's fine um, so overall like the way I was thinking about this is if I were recutting the Witcher Sean I would do I would make it more clear up front what we're doing with time. I think episode one should have just started with the Siri stuff in episode one should be one collected flash. Like it should start the show. Like be a cold open, the fall of Sintra. Do it in like fifteen minutes. And when Siri like is running away from the castle, she hears her grandmother tell her, go find Geralt, and then we cut to title and we meet Geralt and then episode one should be probably a different short story, but some short story to introduce us to Geralt. Episode two should probably be another Geralt one focused episode three. I think you should have a standalone Yennefer episode. And then I think from that point on, you could continue mostly the way they did maybe with a different finale, but I just think the early stuff to like, make it clear where we are in time. What's a flash forward. How are these related? Cause by the time I think, especially you get to episode five, which is the last wish episode and, and now Geralt and Yennefer meet, I think having all of that context makes it all really good. Like I think because we saw all of Yennefer's backstory and we know where it all was in time, I think her and Geralt getting together in the way they do has more weight than it otherwise would. And I think when we get to episode seven and we see the other side of the fall of Sintra, because we saw where it's ultimately going, and this is actually episode four also, four and seven together are much stronger because we had that context earlier. I just don't think the context was presented in the most conducive way to the audience. Um, but, you know, Netflix probably said you have to have eight hour long episodes. And I think within the structure they were given, there's not a ton you could do more with than that. So. Yeah, because I think it is like, because there are definitely advantages to them
1: doing like intercutting with the Syrian universe stuff. And like you said, some of those, where, the, where those stories end up intersecting which is episode four, which tells you a lot of the series stuff. And then episode five and episode six, where which have Geralt and Yennefer doing their stuff together. Um, there's there's definitely advantages to having that additional context. Um, and so I think with the way that most American TV is structured, which is that you have to have the A plot, B plot, C plot thing. Um, like they do a pretty good job of it. In my heart of hearts, I still would have just liked the here's the 30 to 40 minute episode episode we're just doing the Witcher short stories um, and adapting those to TV style thing would have been nice to, to have gotten that. Um, but, but there is something really fascinating about them because I feel like it was very intentional to make the chronology stuff really esoteric um, for that first half or so of the season. And that like, they don't tip their hand to it basically at all um, until I think probably episode four when Calanthe shows up again and she's alive all of a sudden um and so until that point i was sitting there being like is this stuff supposed to be happening at the same time because i know it's not from the books but i don't know if the show is changing the timeline at which these things are happening and maybe yennefer is going to be like 19 or something when Geralt meets her i have no idea um which that would be very weird um yeah for a lot of reasons but then, and then that kind of reveal that's like no actually all three of these stories are happening at completely different like you know some of these are like literally a hundred plus years apart from each other like the Universe stuff before she meets Geralt is forever ago because she's super old um like it's kind of interesting piecing those things together when they get there um but I think they could have definitely done more to set it up um even if it is a fun reveal when you're finally like oh shit okay this is what they're doing that is cool. It's probably not cool enough for like the cost they pay in clarity early on. Um but, yeah, I think it's kind of a hard problem to solve though, with like having to mix these different elements with the original short stories that weren't necessarily designed to have these other sort of like things inserted in there as
0: well. Yeah, and I I think also like the the Geralt stuff is pretty much solid gold throughout. The Yennefer stuff is a little hit or miss when it's good it's really good when it's bad like I think episode two has some really rough patches where it just feels like this is not a good kind of fantasy Um, but the Siri stuff is weird to me because I think mostly it feels superfluous like I think you could have just had Siri running away and the way I would have done it is had a late series episode where it's just the Siri episode and we come back to her and see some of her adventures because they kind of it seems like they they feel this obligation to check in on Ciri in every episode, and in some of it there's not really a story to tell, you know. Um, yeah, some of it's okay. Some of it, I really like how it all comes together in the finale. That's the part of the finale I do like. I like that Ciri and Geralt are separately, separately by the same family is a nice way to bring them together in the end. I don't I don't remember if that's exactly how it happens in the short story or not. Yeah, I don't remember either. I think I think it is, but I yeah, don't remember. So, but either way, it's it's very nice. That's the good part of the finale. Um, but in general, it just some of it felt a little bit like this is wheel spinning American television. Um, but like we said, when it's good, it's good. So let's let's just talk about some of the characters, Sean, because that's what's key here. Um, yeah, Henry Cavill is Geralt. I didn't expect it, but now that I've seen it, I see what this the showrunners and everyone saw in him because what they do frankly is take all of henry cavill's weaknesses and turn them into strengths um i've never thought he was a bad actor but i think he's an actor with limited range which is not a bad thing lots of actors have limited range and i think when you direct it in the right way he can be very effective like in mission impossible fallout and when you direct it in the wrong way he can be kind of this weird charisma black hole like in the Superman movies where he just is the least interesting Superman but here they 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 one they lean into his physicality they they kind of take his lack of affect and make it an affect which is very effective for Geralt and then I think he just turns in better acting than I've ever seen from him in kind of just small like physical embodiment of the character a lot of small detail in his performance, the way he kind of like reads off of other people. Um, it's a really good performance. And like he's got a scene in the finale where he's like in a dream confronting his mother that like I didn't know Henry Cavill had that in him. He's really good in that. And overall, like you and I have both said, he looks a little too pretty. He does look a little too pretty. I think they should have at least given him a beard or a scar on the face or something. I was happy to see when he gets naked, they do put the scars on his body, which is good. Um I Mm -hmm. almost feel like they put out that photo Of him in the bathtub as promo They must have edited the scars out of that Because in the actual episode he's got way more scars Than were in that photo I feel like But whatever Um, So Yeah. yeah Overall though I think it's an incredibly effective Performance and I bought into him as Geralt pretty much immediately and every Time it cut back to Geralt I just Even though there are you know Two other Geralts in my mind there's the one In the books and there's the one in the video game i i was it was easy for me to buy into a third version and that's really impressive yeah i agree
1: like i think he just totally nails it and it is those things where he nails the physicality of the character that's really important and he just like really gets that world weariness of the character which i think is kind of the most important part of his just like both that he's he's so done with all this shit and yet he's there's always like there's a part of him that so wants to like care again and like reach out for someone, which is part of what makes like, there are things about that, the lesser evil story that make it a good introductory story. Just a hard one to be, to be an adaptation for a TV show, because that is a really good example of Geralt on his shit being like, oh, fuck this. Uh, I don't want to, I'm just here to kill monsters. Blah, blah, blah. And then he meets someone else that is, you know, in pain the way that he is in pain and he wants to help them. and in the middle stretch of the story is him trying to help them and he's always trying to help people that cannot be helped because the world is fucked and people are fucked and he's like well shit everything is fucked and now i have to kill the person i was trying to help and i'm just going to leave while everyone's like throwing fucking you know like tomatoes at my face basically and running me out of town um and he gets that essence of geralt that like he he is beat down so much like he's this very reluctant cynic like he in his heart he wants to care about things um but it it always hurts him whenever he does but he's always going to still try to reach out um when the opportunity ultimately presents itself and they nail that and one of the main areas where they get that and i think the most important character that they nail is dandelion or yes i'm going to call him dandelion because i cannot not think of his name as dandelion like yes is what his name is in polish so it makes sense that they did that but in the translations of the books and the game the character is called dandelion um this was, I think, probably the hardest character to use yes, for this absolutely. show.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: And yeah. they fucking nailed it. And I was, sh- I was just flabbergasted because episode two is definitely a rough episode. In many ways, it's probably more rough than episode one. But I was just grinning so much. It's like I can't fucking believe that they're pulling this off with this fucking character because i just did like i thought maybe they were going to cut dandelion out because i thought maybe they just wouldn't want to deal with it because i think he's so hard to do i think dandelion is one of the few things that the game sometimes don't do um oh i like dandelion in the show so much
0: more than in the game that's that's one where i will 100 percent give the advantage to the show i think it does dandelion better Yeah, like, there's
1: stuff... There's Dandelion stuff in the games I like, um, but there's definitely, like, that character's very hit or miss. In the show, it's just, like, they 100% get this, like, fucking rock star vibe that the character needs to have. And I think it's a delicate, tonal thing to be able to have this weird, like, out-of-time rock star boy and Geralt the Witcher together. Like, it's such a bizarre thing that you would never imagine could work. Um, And it's one of those, like, weird... Miraculous feats Of the original stories Is that like Those two characters Complete each other And like The very early Witcher stories That don't Before Dandelion Is introduced as a character Don't feel fully complete yet Like the The conception Of the The series Doesn't feel like It's fully like Sort of congealed Until Dandelion Gets introduced Um And so it's good That the show Gets him in there early And it's Um What's his name Joey Beatty Um Is the guy who plays him And he just fucking
0: nails it and And he's got the voice of a fucking angel just his voice is great i they we get a couple of ballads we get toss a coin to your witcher which is completely worthy of the memes it inspired it is a great song i have listened to it many times and it has been stuck in my head i love it i wish we got a couple more dandelion songs but i'm sure given the success of toss a coin to your witcher we'll get a lot in season two um honestly and and you know i think it's interesting the in the short stories if i remember correctly he's known dandelion like we don't get an origin story of him and dandelion whereas the show may very yes. clearly does like depicts it as a first meeting so like their relationship is rougher in this season than it is ever in the books um although that feels true to i think somewhere in the Sopkovsky verse Geralt probably was more of a dick to Dandelion <laughs> before they were like fast friends honestly Sean my biggest complaint with this entire season is I don't love that they leave the Geralt Dandelion relationship unresolved this season like I I know they're Joey Beatty is a is a core member of the cast he's coming back I know they're not never going to go back to it I wish the finale had at the very least like in one of his like dream sequences had Joey Beatty there for Geralt to like express regret because the last scene they have together in this season is in episode six where they're hunting the dragon and Geralt snaps at him at the end and says you know you're ruining my life basically and dandelion leaves and I was just so crushed by that and you know Geralt regrets it as soon as he says it and it's not that I don't believe Geralt would do that I believe Geralt is an asshole and would do that. But I also believe Geralt is a pretty deeply good man and would then want to make it right. And, you know, I get that the plot maybe didn't allow them to get them back together this season, but it feels like something in the season that's unfinished to me, you know?
1: Yeah, I, yeah. it just very much is that thing of that, like, they have to be separated because then they team up to, to help out with the series stuff when Geralt, like, gets his whole, like, band of, of people together. Um. So, yeah, so and I kind of agree that it's like it would have been nice... And, and that, like, you know, his delirious spell that he has when he hallucinates about his mother it would be a good time to have some sort of Dandelion-related scene. Um, so that stuff is a little bit rough. But I do think, like, one of the things that they just get so well about Dandelion is with the music that he sings. Um, that I love that it is basically, like, folk rock music. Like, it is not stylistically like, the kind of music they would have played in whatever sort of, like, medieval-esque Europe setting or Poland setting that this uh, show is sort of, like, pseudo-takes place in. Obviously, it's it's fantasy. Um, But it it just has, like, a... Man, this is just, like... You could just play this on a guitar and it sounds like a fucking, like, you know, Warren Zevon or Bob Dylan-esque song. Like, it is... It fits in that kind of folk rock um, genre. And that is that's what it needs to be like it needs to be that kind of like really catchy just like fucking here's like your like three chords it's like d a and e or something it's like that's it it's like here you go here's your fucking like super simple really catchy folk rocksy kind of song and and all across i think the music is really well done in this show um because they also have some stuff that's like very clearly inspired by the the soundtrack that the game has um that i think they pull off really well um, it's got some of that really in- like interesting instrumentation that I can only assume probably comes from like traditional Polish music because it's also the stuff that the game does. Um, but when they need that fucking really catchy dandelion music, they can pull that stuff out and it is yeah. So I definitely
0: good. want to give special mention to the score because it's 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 really good. It uh, it's evoking the same things the game is evoking, but it's not the game score. Like it's it feels like its own thing, and I think it's it's also it's kind of like it's a metaphor for the show itself in that like. it's the same source but it is it stands on its own two feet Um, like the the main Geralt theme that they play in the show is is really quite good Um, and and I love the the musical side of the show I totally agree Um, yeah the I feel like episode four where which is the one where Gaskier takes Geralt to the the ball, or or the which is a little different than in the short story because Geralt is invited there in the short story. I like how they adapted it to be he's he's accompanying Dandelion because Dandelion has cuckolded too many of these lords. Um, it's very good, and yeah. Geralt in one of the best Geralt moments, um, explaining and lying that Dandelion is a eunuch to get him out of trouble is mwah, That's one of those like this show gets it. This show fucking gets it. Moments. Yes um cuz overall like like i think dandelion is indicative of so much of what this show gets right because this show shouldn't be game of thrones making claims to like prestige greatness it should be a little rough it should be horny as hell and it should be fucking weird and that's what this show at its best gets yes. like the last wish episode i think embodies this best in in that You know Geralt just meets Yennefer in the middle of a magic orgy and offers her apple juice like yeah this show fucking gets what it is and I love that about it I love that it is openly fantasy it like it it just wears fantasy on its sleeves in a way that like Game of Thrones is scared of fantasy it does not like bringing fantasy into it it shuns fantasy um this like the witcher is in love with all of that like in some ways i feel like the witcher at its best feels a little bit like Xena warrior princess or something and it it totally gets that vibe um really well at times and that's like like dandelion would not be in this show if if you had like the game of thrones people adapting it but he's in it when these people are adapting it and that's good it's real good yeah absolutely. so let's talk about the other side of it um with siri there's not a lot of talk about with siri yet because this season she's mostly just running i do the the actress who's playing her her name is freya allen who is older than she looks she's 18 i was looking this up because i was trying i was trying to pin down how old siri is supposed to be um because i forget how old she is in the short stories when Sintra falls
1: she's pretty young i think she's probably like nine right. or right and, and the
0: actress looks older than nine or ten she does not look as old as she is in real life so i'm not sure how old siri is supposed to be um that's why i was looking that up but she is a good siri like i can totally see because she's gonna have to like grow up over the course of this show and i think it's a promising start to that character what did you think sean
1: yeah, I agree. Like, there's not, there's just not a lot of material here um, to kind of judge that by. By, I, I agree that it feels like they clearly cast her thinking about, okay, what are you going to be able to do once we get into the proper, like, Witcher saga and Siri becomes effectively, like, the main character, um, right. eventually, like, will the, do you have, like, the chops to pull that off and the little bits you see here when she gets to play more interesting stuff. I, I think that's there. It's just there's not right. a lot to talk about. We do about have the yet. whole
0: Sintra side of the show and like Queen Calanthe and um, you have Mouse, not mouse trap. What's his name? Oh, God. Mouse yeah, uh, Mouse Sack. And you have all of those characters there. I really like the whole Sintra world. Um, Queen Calanthe, I think, over the course of the series is really interesting because every time we see her is from such a vastly different point of view. Um, I really like all the, the vantage points we get on her over the course of the season. Yeah, yeah. Queen Clanthe is played by an actress named Jodie May, and she just
1: fucking nails it. Like, there's, yeah, it's. Especially because um, I think probably my favorite episode is episode four, partially because that's. Of the stories they've adapted, that's my favorite story. Um, and, and there you get a lot of really good Queen Clanthe stuff, and her, like. Just disdain for all the courtly bullshit she has to deal with, and her just like wanting to go out and just like murder people on the battlefield. It's very good. Um, yeah, there's and it, it's one of those things that's very fun about the structure of the season is seeing that like older Queen Calanthe who's kind of has all these regrets clearly. Um, in episode one before she's killed, uh, and then you get to meet that like slightly younger version of the character. Um, and see kind of how she ends up in this place where Nilfgaard They're like kind of the arrogance that she had That leads to the place of Nilfgaard invading And then the loss that she experiences between those two
0: stories Of, yeah. of her children Episode 4 is definitely a good candidate for best. I don't know which one is my favorite Like I said three, four, five, six, I liked pretty roughly equally um, If anything 6 might be my favorite Because I just love the, the story with the dragons and all that It's so good But um, episode yeah. 4 would be a good candidate for best If for no other reason than how they handle the ending With Geralt claiming the law of surprise Kind of as an offhanded like joke And then her learning she's pregnant And the way they handle that with just having Henry Cavill go Fuck And then leaving Perfect Because that's not exactly how it happens in the book But it's a great adaptation to just let it be Oh god damn it Now I have to deal with this shit It's so Geralt It's so perfect Oh man I Mm -hmm. love it Um, Yeah yeah, all of that Uh, And then the Yennefer side of the show um, You have an actress named Anya Chalatra playing Yennefer And I'm kind of Of two minds on this I think she's really good as a Performer and I think she and Henry Cavill are really good together In their scenes I could Never quite get over how young she looks Because Anya Chalatra is extremely young She's younger than either of us Sean she's 23 She looks 23 she looks Mm -hmm. Younger than that at times I know Yennefer of Wengerberg is eternally young, but there's eternally young in a like Galadriel sense where like, I kind of feel like a weight and like age to it. And there's eternally young where she looks like a kid and she looks like a kid too much in this. I don't mean a kid like 12. I just mean a kid. Like when I say I'm going to go teach my college class with those kids, like that kind of thing where like they just feel young Um and some of that especially because Henry Cavill is like 15 years older and i think he effectively plays Geralt even older than that i just i don't know if i fully bought it the way i wanted to and i don't know if if that's just me i don't know if you thought that i don't know
1: um i i think i get a little bit of that i think i kind of got over it when she is playing the older version of the character from like episode 5 um Yeah, because episode five is the last wish one, so that's by the time that happens, she's already been like a whole like court sorceress or court witch and all this kind of stuff at that point. Um, I, I think that there's maybe more that she can do because I think the idea of having her look like very young is the like in many ways the right instinct like because she is supposed to like witches are supposed to be like you know impossibly beautiful or sorceresses and that they are you know effectively immortal barring accidents kind of thing um but i think she could do more to like evoke this sense that that the character has lived that long in a very like you know the kind of thing that like a doctor who kind of needs to do thing of It's like the character is supposed to read as young, like superficially, but you're supposed to admit to the sort of like see a lot more behind it. And I think there are moments when she does that. Um, but I don't think it's like always there, I think is kind of how, I yeah, I
0: guess it. I would agree with that. Like, yeah, I don't think there's any reason she can't project that it's, it's, and I just don't know how much of it is performance and how much of it is like costuming and makeup and, and all sorts of, and the writing, um, because sometimes like like it worked for me and I didn't think about it and there were other times where it would cut to her and I'm just like that's she's she's too like it's like that's a kid like it doesn't feel like an immortal witch to me um in a way that like Doctor Who is a good example where like if I go back and watch season five of Doctor Who now Matt Smith is younger than I am in that uh just if you want to feel old Sean Mm -hmm. let's just say that um I hang out with teenagers all day now Jonathan I feel old eternally Um, you're a teacher to be clear (laughs) I feel like we always need to get yes. context for that. <laughs> you don't hang out with teenagers for fun. You do it for. No, I, I do it for worse. money. Okay. Wait, that's, yeah. uh, that doesn't um, sound no. better. <laughs> but, but like, if I watch that now, like Matt Smith doesn't seem like a kid to me. He, he effectively like reads as this immortal time Lord. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's just because I have a deeper connection to Dr. Who. I, I watched that when I was growing up, who knows? But um, it's just something I thought about a couple times Um, And like there's no good answer to it It's it's there's no such thing As an immortal witch so it's hard To know how to evoke it I just Was aware of it a couple times over the course Of the season and I think I don't know I weirdly I think It's less of a problem when she's with Geralt Because she's with like an equal And there's this good exchange going on when it's with all the other witches, yeah. and I think that side of the show is pretty thin. I I don't like a lot of those characters. I don't think they ever come across that strongly. That's when I kind of feel like this doesn't fully come together. And maybe that has nothing to do with her, and more to do with just that side of the show isn't very good.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is more that like when she's with Geralt, she like especially in. Um, episode six where they've been like split up for a while and they come together again Um, that that dynamic is so rich and I think there it communicates the ages of the two characters really well Um, but yes when she doesn't have that kind of like other like thing to bounce off of it's hard to evoke because she does read physically as extremely young because I agree with you she looks like she's like 19 or something to me like she looks physically extremely young when she has another character to kind of bounce off of, I think she does yeah. a very good job, though. No, totally.
0: And it'll be really interesting, because she does not meet Siri this season, but Siri and Yennefer have mm-hmm. a mother-daughter relationship, essentially. Um, she, these two actors, Siri and Yennefer, are only five years apart in age. That's going to be an interesting challenge for all involved to really sell that, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm very curious about that. Um, yeah, but... And I should say, I don't hate, like everything on the the sort of witchcraft side of the show. Some of it, like, especially when it just gets kooky, like, I like the people being turned into eels and swept into the fucking moat. That's great. Yeah. Um, I think the intercutting at the end of episode three between Yennefer going through the transformation into beautiful Yennefer and uh, Geralt having the fight in the castle with the um, Striga, that's a great intercutting.
1: Yeah, they well, specifically... Yeah, they intercut between the Striga transforming yes. into the princess and Jennifer transforming from,
0: you know, what she looked like into like the impossibly yes. beautiful Yennefer. Uh, and it's and getting her yeah. womb cut out, basically. Uh it's gnarly. It's fucking gnarly. Um I don't think it's worth saying, you know, this show does have a fair bit of nudity in it. And I I think this is one where you can definitely tell this is a show that was written and showrun by women. Because the way they handle yeah. the nudity with... Because Jennifer is the character who gets naked most often. I mean, Henry Cavill is not infrequently nude, but it means something different, different for men and women, obviously. Um, it never yeah. really felt gratuitous to me. It never felt like the camera was super male gazy. It never felt like the camera was just like, we're, we're going to get her naked because we want to see tits, like this is a Showtime show or something. Um, it felt more put together than that. You know, sometimes the show is just horny. Like, again... They get Henry Caville in the bathtub because you want to see Henry Caville in the bathtub. Like, there's no second guesses about yeah. that. Um, but I was impressed that it never felt like early Game of Thrones or something where we just have to get characters naked, like what they did to Amelia Clark a lot, you know? Yes, I agree. Yeah, I think there's a pretty big difference
1: between how they deal in like frame with Yennefer's nudity in those sequences, especially because generally when she she gets naked there's like something interesting happening with the yeah. story around it. It's not just like like Game of Thrones would like to just have like here's just like a normal exposition scene. Let's just have, like, a naked lady in the background of these, like, two dudes talking. And they would do that in the first two seasons, in particular, Game of Thrones, quite a bit. Because, you know, they have, like, that brothel, which is a good excuse to do it. But it's, like, they're not really... The scene no. is not about this. You're. It's clear what you're what you're doing here. And with Game of Thrones... I'm oh, sorry, with The Witcher, like, in Episode 3, that intercutting is, like, not sexy. It's, like, horrifying. It's, like, because you're watching a monster turn into a girl and a girl turn into a monster right like this it, it's a really well done sequence and then in the last wish there's a lot of nudity because Or i guess that's not what that episode's called episode 5 bottled appetites um well there you go i mean they fucking named it it's you know that's yes. the horny episode that's the here's the two people who are very pent up for a lot of different reasons and then they fuck like that's what but that even then, the reason about and there's 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 a genie. The main stretch somewhere. of time where um, she's naked
0: in that episode is when she's trying to summon the genie, and like th- that's not sexy nudity. That's just matter of fact. Yes, I'm naked because I'm trying to summon this into my womb. I know that's a weird thing to be matter of fact about, but like <laughs> it's she's yes. been around for a while. Like it's she's pretty matter of fact at that. Exactly, about that but it's it's not sex nudity in that same way. Like like again, compare it to like the scene with Geralt in the bathtub. That's much more of a. We're yeah. going to objectify this. And it's fine because that's that's part of The Witcher is that Geralt is fucking hot. You know, he kind of has to be. <laughs> yeah.
1: I remember I, I saw an interview because the Netflix put out a bunch of stuff on their YouTube channel that's like behind the scenes and interview kind of stuff around the time the show came out. That's cool. There's a really good one that they just put out that is um, Henry Cavill breaking down the big fight scene at the end of episode one that people should watch because it's cool. Um, But in one of those interviews He talked about the bathtub scene And he was like You know I really tried to put my feet up On the bathtub like the first shot from Witcher 3 um, But the bathtub wasn't the right size He just kind of couldn't do it And get it to look right Um, And he was also talking about like, And when we are doing it I wasn't entirely sure if anybody else Like on the crew that day Understood how important this shot was And how much people are going to fixate on this moment Because you know Henry Cavill's You know talked a lot about how he, he's into games like it's you know this well before he's played a main dude from a very popular video game he's talked about how he you know he's played World of Warcraft and stuff like that but he's he's a dude who gets it and I just love the idea of him being there, like, obsessing about the details of the fucking bathtub shot. And, like, some of the people on the crew just being like, why are we spending so much time, like, trying to figure out how to do the? Like, just shoot him and he's in the bathtub. It should be easy. It's like, no, I got it. You have to get it right here. It's like, damn it. The fucking my feet just don't, it just doesn't quite That's work That's so right. great. That's so uh. great.
0: I love that. And it comes across. Like, you, you, you feel the... Yeah. This is part of why I think the finale doesn't work Is I don't feel any passion In the big battle sequence of the finale It feels very workmanlike Like let's just get this done And I feel like The Last Wish yes. When it is horny And doing weird shit with a genie And he's bringing the apple juice And all that like that feels like Passionate top to bottom You know what I mean And and that's yeah. good that means the show has its priorities Straight Um and and you know maybe if they have to do more Game of Thrones ask episodes they'll get better at that um, but I think when they're doing the Witcher ass episodes they're very good at it and yeah I really can't overstate I think how good Henry Cavill and Anya Chalotra are together though and how good the writing is there like those episodes five and six which are the big Jennifer Geralt episodes are just so fun the dynamics between them just feel so true to me it's just it's electric it's very good stuff Um and the last wish was one of the big markers for me Sean because i love that short story it's so important to the lore of the witcher and like when they when i saw they nailed that that was when i was like most confidently like yep yeah if you can do the last wish feels like one of those tests like if you can do this one you can do the witcher
1: yeah i mean that's the that's the short story that the original named collection for, yes. is named after
0: so yeah it's definitely yeah, a very absolutely. important one so good stuff all around what else is there to talk about with the Witcher uh, I do want to mention I do think the action scenes with Geralt are generally very very good um, the one at the end of episode one is probably the best choreographed fight in the series because it's just so fucking brutal but I also love the one at in episode three where he's in the house with the striga there's the moment where they're yeah. fighting and he just throws like an ard symbol at the floor and it just falls out beneath him that's a great shot um really good stuff and I love how much they build like Henry Cavill like buffed up for this show but not sort of like Captain America it's like he just got big like like Geralt is a big heavy yeah. guy like m- heavy muscles and and like he's he's stout you know and I feel like Henry Cavill got that physicality and then in the choreography of all the fights it's these big precise heavy movements like he's moving to cut shit in half and like that's very true like that's how they do it in the game I think that's how it's imagined in the stories that's what Geralt of Rivia would do and they they really nail that and it's part of the character and performance and it it helps the whole show I think
1: yeah I kind of wish that they had had another big Geralt fighting a monster scene even though like Honestly, there aren't that many of those in the stories. It's one of those things, just like weird. It's like it happens all the time in the game because it's a video game. The short story he honestly doesn't fight monsters that frequently. Like it happens. Um, it, probably the biggest one is his fight with the Striga from The Witcher, um, which is what Episode Three is adapted from. And they do, yeah, they do a great fucking job with that. I like that they just let like the Striga just looks fucking gnarly as shit, and it's great. It's like one of those things I loved about the games is just the really. Non-conventional aesthetics for most of the creatures that he
0: fights. Oh, um, so it's just this just. And I think the Striga is someone in makeup and prosthetics. It's not CGI, which is really impressive yes. too. Because I, yeah. I think the Kikimora he fights in episode one is CGI. Because I don't know how else he would do that. But um, the Striga is is practical effects, and it looks like something out of the Dark Crystal or something. It's great.
1: Yeah, it looks great. There's that fucking just rad moment in the middle of that fight where he's got like that silver chain and he's like spinning it around and throws it and like lasses it around the striga, yep. which then breaks out of it. And that's where you get a trademark girl. Oh, yeah. fuck. Um, which is very good. Yeah, so yeah, the fight scenes are great. Yeah, I think episode one and three are the two standout ones. Um, episode one for him cutting up humans. Episode three for him cutting up monsters. Some good stuff in episode six also um, where they have the big fight um near the end of that uh episode
0: on the mountaintop yeah i think we can yes. officially say we are in a good age for practical monsters again where like because this show unless mm-hmm. it has to be cgi they do it practical like the dude in episode four with the goat head or the porcupine head is yeah yeah, yeah. he's like a dude the in makeup I... um the the like weird guy in episode two who's with the elves is all physical. Um, You know you look at other TV shows doing this kind of stuff like the Mandalorian keeping it again if unless it has to be CGI Uh, also the dragons in episode 6 they're CGI but they're really cool dragons and it was like that's something I always thought Game of Thrones did poorly is that the dragons in Game of Thrones are the most boring generic like clip art dragons and I feel like I want dragons who are cool and imaginative and that big gold dragon was just fucking cool in in Witcher episode 6.
1: Yes, I'm also just a big fan of yes. dragons that can talk. Like, if you can get a dragon that talks, like, give me fucking Sean Connery, Dragonheart bullshit. Like, I am here for it. I like a like thousand-year wizened old dragon that like speaks to you telepathically or some shit. That's that's you know, which is again, that's like one of the things just I like about The Witcher because that's one of the best stories from I think that's from sort of Destiny that one. Um, and it's yeah, that one's a good classic like monster hunt with a twist kind of story. Um, and that's like one of the things that's just great about this show Is that they adapted a bunch of my favorite short stories There's a couple of them um, Particularly most of the ones they pulled were from the first collection So I'd like a couple more from Sword of Destiny um, There's like the mermaid one from Sword of Destiny That would probably be hard to do um, But it would be, if that one's probably my favorite Witcher short story But generally they pick some really great ones And every time I realize, oh shit, this is the one where they go hunt the dragon This is the one that has the big banquet where the Hedgehog Knight shows up Um, I would just get excited to see how they would do it and then I'm like yeah they knocked it out of the park like I think one of the things that full most fully sold me on the show and on Henry Cavill in particular um, is in episode four which is the banquet episode there's a really important moment with Geralt which I remember like in the books being a moment that really sold me on the character from the books which is Geralt has this long conversation with Queen Calanthe and it's like the first time you've ever seen Geralt talk to somebody who doesn't put Geralt down or underestimate him severely because Geralt is a really smart like erudite dude like he knows how to speak he has really complex philosophical thoughts about himself and the world around him. But he almost never expresses it because whenever he tries to express it, people make fun of him or, or they, like, you know, throw shit at him. They, they insult him because he's supposed to be this big, dumb, mutant monster hunter dude who you come into town, you fight the monster, and then we spit on you as you leave. Like, that's the, that's the society he lives in. And the few times he gets to talk to someone as an equal, which he does with Queen Calanthe, you also get to see it with his stuff with Yennefer in Episodes 5 and 6 – that's where you get that full picture of Geralt as a person. That he's like this really thoughtful person. And that moment where he just gets to have this real conversation with Calanthe. And the way that Cavill plays it. Where you get to see this like... Geralt kind of gets to be happy. That he gets to just like talk to someone and express opinions. And then that person actually listens to them. And responds to them. And it's a really important moment for that character. And they they narrowed in on And like nailed that moment for the show. And that's one of those times where I'm watching it I'm like yes the people making this get it they understand the appeal of the Witcher franchise of this specific character of this story from the short story collection and just the world in general the tone and style of the Witcher which is a very particular kind of fantasy that like nothing I've ever seen delivers on and it's the reason why I like this stuff so much and this show absolutely fucking nails it and Mm -hmm if it has you know problems here and there um at the beginnings and the endings um of the season that whole middle stretch is so good that like i'll i'll take the bad episode eight if i get all the good yeah especially because
0: episode eight like nails the stuff i really wanted to see like Geralt and siri meeting you know like like and it it gets to the right Mm -hmm. end point it's just got some like filler in the middle i dislike it's like an anime you know like sometimes anime has filler but i don't throw out the the filler with the bathwater. i don't know how to say that you know um, i guess the fill the bath water is the filler in that case but in any case yes um i don't throw out baby gohan with the robot yes sure okay. yes yeah you yeah yeah you don't throw out namek with yes exactly fake namek. that's that's the best one there you go although if you can just skip fake namek um so yeah anyway yeah and And I agree about Geralt. If there's something I wish they would do more with Geralt in season two is they need to give him something like Gwent. They need to find something. Like I know (laughs) Gwent is not, Gwent's not in the books, right? That's a, no. But like there's something about what Gwent says about Geralt that like he is a dude who enjoys coming into town and getting a drink and sitting down and playing Gwent. Like he has likes and dislikes and he is not always like gruff dude. And some of that is just that the cd project red games are depicting a much older Geralt who has like calmed down a little bit um but i would like to see a little more of that where you see Geralt without the rough edges because i feel like that's something that's where they could expand the characterization it's not like the characterization feels incomplete to me in in season one but there are ways you can expand it and some of that will come naturally with him having to raise siri you know um
1: yeah, and I'm, it, I mean, this season makes me very excited to see them be able to tackle... Because with season two, since they're getting into The Witcher novels, it means that they'll have... You know, we'll lose some of like the fun sort of pacing stuff you can do of having like very discreet stories from the short stories. But you will gain a lot more sort of detailed character stuff um, that these short stories don't necessarily do because they're very standalone. And so, yeah, his relationship with Ciri... I'm really excited to see him sort of get his whole band of buddies together with like a lot more dandelion stuff. And then you get, I forget his name, but there's like the vampire dude. He's got his dwarf friend. He's got Yennefer, um, Triss. Like he has all these other characters that he starts kind of bringing together um, on his adventures. And and I'm really excited to see them get to do that because I think that's that will deliver what you're asking right. for, of like seeing some other sides of Geralt and and those side like the softer sides of Geralt that he gets to have when he's around like the people that he cares about. And, and this season was about partially him collecting Dandelion and Yennefer. And then at the end, Siri as people that he
0: cares about that, then those relationships get to grow um, in season yeah. two. Well. So I have not read the novels yet. I've read all the short stories. I'm definitely, I have downloaded the, the novels again and I'm planning to, to go through them now. Um, because i i might even be doing a little project on the witcher later um in the semester with school stuff um but what should we like what are you hoping for out of the next season now that we're moving into that assuming it's a relatively straightforward adaptation kind of like what they did here um are, are we should we be excited about moving into the full saga Yeah definitely like I one thing I hope for is I I
1: hope that they find a couple of spaces to do flashbacks to try to pull in with like like in a motivated way to pull in some of the short stories that they skipped over because I think there's still some good material and I think that there are ways that you could find fun ways to bring that material in as like a flashback that then comments on whatever's happening in the main adventure um and I think one thing to look forward to is like You don't have to have a lot of the structurally messy stuff um, because because you're not like trying to sort of Frankenstein together a lot of different pieces. You get to have the more straightforward, like, here's Geralt and Ciri on this adventure. And sometimes you will have, like, A plot, B plot because the books sometimes have A plot, B plot when Geralt and Ciri are separated then they come back together. Um, And I think something to look forward to that I'm really excited to see is... Um, the actors playing Ciri to be able to like actually dig into that character because Ciri is the main character of those books, ultimately. Um, Geralt and Yennefer are obviously main characters with her, but the Witcher saga, broadly speaking, is really about Ciri and then Geralt playing that kind of like mentor father role to her. But in like the kind of the way you see in the game where Ciri is the one around whom the larger machinations kind of revolve because she is like the one descended from royalty she has this like special blood descend like the old blood from the elves and all that stuff um so then being able to dig into more of like the pie fantasy shit around Siri since they nailed some of the weirder fantasy elements in these short stories, I think that we have a lot to look forward to with like there's some weird shit you know like widger gets into weird shit and that's fun and there's weird shit ahead so with there are characters.
0: five books in the main novel saga. Game of Thrones yes. at the start at least was doing one book a season. Do you think that's roughly what they'll be doing? Do you think that's not that's too slow? Uh It's been too long since I read them to remember in detail how much cuz
1: I like where one book begins and the next one ends kind of thing. I've yeah. completely lost. Um cuz I'm going to definitely reread those books between now and when the season 2 stuff airs. Um cuz I've actually I've, I've already been rereading some through some of the short stories. They're those. good that show is good and it reminded me how good witcher is and i'm like man these are really good short stories and i don't have a lot of time to read novels right now but i can read a fucking short story and that's great um so yeah like i don't remember i think probably i think maybe you could probably like do a little bit more than one book per season like i don't know if i definitely like need five seasons or five more seasons of The Witcher TV show, like,
0: this being six seasons long sounds way too long. It also long sounds like so more than the Netflix like... would do, because Netflix really doesn't do shows that yes. long anymore. They, some of their early shows made it that long, um, but, like, I think their longest was Orange is the New Black at seven. Bojack was cancelled at six, um, which I should mention, Bojack Horseman finale, great. It, it got to end, but it, they had planned on going longer. Um, so uh, glow is ending at four you know it seems like th- they're not a eight season kind of network yeah i think in my
1: like off the top of my head i would want the show to aim for like four to five seasons yeah. total with like season one included that sounds about the right length seven seasons sounds like yeah a lot like six or seven right. sounds too much
0: well we'll see um are you on board with the fan campaign to get mark hamill cast as vesemir
1: oh man it's, it's such a good it's 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 so perfect
0: yes please oh that'd be great oh, well and you know God. they're making that anime style movie. it's people keep saying it's an anime movie it's an american animated production in the style of like avatar the last airbender which is not anime because anime is animation made in japan words have meanings but they're doing this like anime style uh witcher movie which apparently is going to be like vesemir's origin story i am down for that that sounds great Yes yeah give me more Witcher stuff I like the Witcher Alright so that's all our TV talk Um, Sean before We close for today I have a just slight surprise topic I'm wondering if you'll talk with me about Are you invoking the law I'm invoking the law of surprise We have not done a politics Chat on here in a long time And I just kind of want to take Temperature because so we are recording This Sunday night uh, today's the 2nd, and on the 3rd, when this comes out, will be the day of the Iowa caucuses. I'm here in Iowa, I live in Iowa, I will be caucusing tomorrow night, so I will be casting oh, my yeah. vote. Um, I'm a registered Democrat, I don't know if you're, I, I don't. I know you're liberal, I don't know if you're a registered Democrat. Okay. Um, yeah, I am. I'm not testing you or anything, <laughs> I'm just curious. Um, all I care about is how people vote. Um, but I just kind of wanted to know, like, um, I was going to maybe talk a bit about who I'm voting for. I'm curious what your thoughts are. I've been talking to a lot of people around here in Iowa, you know, because I was obsessed with this shit, um, cause we're first in the nation. And mm-hmm. I guess I'm just curious where your head is at yeah. with the democratic primary. We could talk about how the entire, you know, Republic is falling before our eyes with the impeachment thing, uh, which is sad, but I don't really want to talk about that. You know, I mean, the impeachment thing went the we exact way
1: everyone knew it would go like yeah there's nothing it's it's not to say that it's not horrifying and that our government isn't like fundamentally busted it is but we've known it's been fundamentally
0: busted for long like, i'll tell you just point. one positive thing so, to say about the yeah. impeachment thing there are i'm a registered democrat who is frequently frustrated with my party because it's full of idiots <laughs> but i have there are a yeah. few times i've felt actively proud to be a democrat i would say Many times during the Obama years, particularly when we like passed health care and stuff. But seeing how I think the Democratic caucus handled impeachment, particularly Adam Schiff prosecuting the case, I was really proud. Um, I think we did that as well as we could have. And that's important because yeah. if nothing else, history demanded it of us and we did it. So that's good. Yeah, it would be nice if like
1: the government functioned in such a way that like you know, the person unfit to yes. be in office is removed from office. But, but I
0: think we did what we could you know. and and what we had to, what we should have done. Yeah. So But yeah, I'm this primary is nuts. Um it, Yeah, yeah. Like I like honestly I've I've not
1: engaged with a lot of like I haven't really been watching the yeah. debates just because it's like fucking man, there's like a dozen people or something yeah. at some point and the people only ever give a shit about about three of them and and i at some point was like i this is so stressful to watch and it doesn't feel productive um that i kind of tuned out a lot of the specific democratic debates it's like man yeah there's (laughs) some people come out of the woodwork when you're looking for people to (laughs)
0: run for president yeah the debates have been really hit her. i have not there's only one i've watched live which was the most recent one because they were down to seven people and i'm like okay i'll watch a seven person debate and that was kind of the worst debate because the moderation was just abysmal i think that was a cnn one um but anyway yeah so i don't know um i am definitely coxing for elizabeth warren uh tomorrow um we'll see how that goes i i will i would predict here in iowa city she will be viable and I will not have to realign with a second choice. And that's good because I really don't know who my second choice would be. Um, I would, if we're just going on pure like who I agree with, it would my second choice would be Bernie Sanders, who I generally like. His fans are very annoying on Twitter. And sometimes just yeah. just leave me alone. Sometimes, guys, it's okay to have different opinions, especially because I'm supporting a Warren. We support all the exact same fucking things um so sometimes that can be a little exhausting uh joe biden is someone i like in the sense of as a human being i am terrified of him being the nominee because he has been so bad on the campaign and and in a way that that makes me kind of sad um that that's kind of going to be his legacy bound out here but we'll see yeah i mean for me like i i think we align pretty
1: Closely that, that like Warren is my top choice. Um, like I'm, I'm fine with Sanders. Like I think with me, the, the main difference, cause they're like, you know, policy wise, they're so yeah. closely aligned. Um, it's not that big a difference, especially when you take into account, like practically speaking, what could be accomplished. Um, like, I don't think there's actually a meaningful difference between the two of them. Once you like get that element added in there. Um, and it's mostly that I think I prefer Warren in terms of like, um, the figurehead quality because that is part of what it also means to be president I, I i think she's a better aesthetic for america which is like you know it's it's not the like the 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 most important thing or the deepest thing when you're looking for a president but it is that thing that's like especially going from trump i think warren projects a this is a very different america whereas like sanders there's a certain amount of like angry old white dude that like when you extract all the actual substantive things from them, it, it like Sanders can be very grating to me. And that's something that like when, when their policies are mostly the same, like that for me is the main deciding factor. Honestly, I have with Warren, um, but yes, like it, you know, Joe Biden is there. Like, I think it is a very realistic chance that Joe Biden is the one that wins the nomination. It's just like, uh, but okay, you know, obviously whoever it is, is whoever it is, whoever it is is better than what we've got, um, but yeah, that that those are my feelings. Yeah, no,
0: it. I I think I I think we definitely align here. Um, you know, I my I definitely think Sanders is going to win Iowa. Um, the the polling indicates that at yeah. this point. Be in mind that polling for a primary is not a great indicator, and for Iowa is especially not because Iowa is really hard to pull But I also just kind of feel it like he's definitely going to win Iowa City because this is a college town. Um, I can tell you right now. Um. And I think if Bernie wins Iowa and then the next one is is uh, New Hampshire, which he's probably going to win, too, I think, you know, we'll see at that point. I think it's probably going to come down between him and Biden. I also think Biden could really be weaker in actual voting than he's been in polls just because this uh, like, you know, I've only had one person come to my door for Biden. I'll say that. And I have had many more people come to my door for everyone else. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: Biden is like the the very safe milk toast kind of choice um because it's just like a here's a very like boring version of barack obama is basically it feels like what you get with a
0: boring and like
1: sometimes very confusing version of barack obama i guess is what an angry
0: one like he's Um, been so angry on the trail and i don't like that i i every time we get another video of biden telling someone don't vote for me and like shoving them like he did the other day like i don't Mm -hmm. that's i don't think that's gonna be trump that doesn't sound right i don't you know Bernie at I agree Bernie can have this angry old white man affect at his worst but I also think he has a very uplifting affect at his best and Biden hasn't shown us that uplifting affect which I know is there I remember the Obama years he could do that it just feels like he just Sanders is one year older and I think you would never guess that from this campaign Biden seems old in a way I mean Bernie Sanders had a fucking heart attack and seems younger it's weird it's very weird Yeah.
1: And in like one thing that like I've been thinking about a lot is like whoever you get in to office, like what does like what becomes of like American democracy and the American government post assuming that there's a that yes. we get post Trump, which is an open question. Um, never, never, never assume things, whether a Democrat is elected or not, whether we get actual post Trump, because that is a like frightening possibility that we should actually consider um you know considering that we got robbed a supreme court justice seat there's no reason why we would not get robbed a presidential seat should things go completely fucked in america which is not you know we're right there on the edge tipping over from dysfunctional to the country no longer functions as a democracy anymore um which is something that we need to consider and that's like that's a lot of the stuff that honestly i've been thinking a lot about. is like, what does that like next step yeah. look like? Um, Especially since like things have not, you know, obviously with you in Iowa, like it's the, the primary stuff is right on your doorstep. It's a bit off for me over here. So it's like, that's some of the stuff I'm like, yeah. oh God. Well, and I, that's also oh, part God, of why man.
0: I agree with you on everything you said about Elizabeth Warren is when I just think of like the person I want rebuilding, she I think would be the best pragmatic day to day. I know how to run shit, you know? I believe she can run shit. Mm -hmm. I believe she can make America respectable and get the, you know, gears working as well as one person can, knowing that it will not all be in the hands of the executive. Um, Yeah, it's but it's weird. I mean, I in general, I think this primary is weird because I do. I like most everyone. There's there's very few people who are serious candidates like who people will actually be voting for (laughs) that I dislike. And even some of the weirdos I, I think Andrew Yang's a funny guy I don't think he should probably be running for president But, you know
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just that thing of like a, Someone has like a couple of like things yes. They really care about It's like, I don't think like Yang doesn't think he's going to be president But he has right. like ideas that he wants to put out Into the, the political marketplace yeah. So to speak um,
0: But, you know, uh, at least he's not a Billionaire who <laughs> Bought his way to the DNC Changing the rules for him which yeah I just mm-hmm. that's one of those I talked about earlier being proud to be a Democrat. You see the stuff about the DNC changing the rules for Bloomberg, and I'm like, we've learned we've learned fucking nothing if that's something you're seriously considering. Yes, you fucking losers. I am so scared about November if that if that is the your kind of priority right now with everything going on, your priority is how do we get Bloomberg onto the debate stage? Bloomberg, who is just he's a fucking conservative, he's not. He he the, the dude fucking went on stage in 2004 and championed the iraq war at the rnc this is not this is not hard guys <laughs> anyway yeah it's you know but it's it's American weird and, and i just it's an interesting conversation because in iowa we have the whole field by the time it gets to colorado which are you guys on i think you guys are on super tuesday um
1: i think so you
0: know the field might have winnowed like i i hope this doesn't happen but there's a very real chance warren's support kind of collapses in iowa in which case i don't know if she makes it to colorado um and i'm very curious what happens then like like your second choice can, you know situations will probably count more than mine where like i'll probably be able to vote for whoever i want but by the time you get to the Colorado primary, who knows what's going on. I've also never done a caucus, so I'm very curious how that whole process will be going, because it's probably gonna be a mess because there's a lot of people who are excited about it. This is probably gonna be the highest turnout caucus in mm. Iowa history. Um so yeah, it's at the elementary school near my house. So I'm gonna try to figure out parking. <laughs> or just maybe walk there. But yeah. It's uh it's a hell of a weird, weird time. Um I don't know how hopeful I feel. <laughs> Or just kind of beaten down.
1: Yeah, you know it's it is. You you live one day at a time, and it's just like yeah. fucking. Oh god! Oh god. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like having having all the democratic primary stuff happening and the impeachment stuff happening at the same time. Um, while I'm like trying to fucking teach Shakespeare to freshmen is like a the overload sometimes can't keep it all in my head at the same time it's
0: definitely rough but you know if you if you are one of our american listeners and have a chance to go vote tomorrow uh in the caucus do it or in whatever caucus is or primary yep. is coming up in your state just uh you know and and i went on a little twitter rant about this the other night don't overthink this shit i i hate when i hear i would want to vote for warren but will other people vote for Warren? just vote for who you, this is the primary vote for vote yeah. for who you want hmm. And I, I truly, this is one thing that does make me optimistic, Sean, is I do believe that unless something goes terribly weird and wrong, whoever wins this primary and actually gets through it will be the best candidate because they will have gotten through this weird gauntlet of a process. Um, and, you know, if that winds up being Bernie Sanders, he's not my first choice, but I would feel pretty confident in that all the other, you know, Democrats, our, our majority or plurality, got behind that, and okay. Um, but, but that means that only works if i feel like we're all voting from our, our hearts and values um and then in the general we all get fucking lockstep and don't fuck around
1: yeah i'm i'm with you that i feel like the like weird sort of 4d chess yeah. mind game thing that some people like to go on with the primaries of like well if this happens then this candidate would this candidate be able to blah blah blah, blah? and i feel like sometimes it's just like you you can't predict or anticipate Anything that's going to happen in the actual election Like it's I feel like if there's anything we learned in 2016 It's that That it's just like fucking the, Don't try to, to do this Like super deep analysis Or try to like predict the future And elect the candidate that you think is the most Electable for the primary process Go with the one that you think I would say probably stick with like Anyone who is eligible to be electable um i mean you know do whatever you want but that that's my thought process is is narrow it down to the people that are in some way realistic and there's a few of them and then pick whoever you think you personally most agree with and you think is the best there don't try to like mind game it too much because that's that is probably the actual way, if enough people do that, that you end up with the worst possible candidate. I is how completely I it. agree.
0: If if Amy Klobuchar is the person you want to vote for, do it. And do it enthusiastically. She'd be a great candidate. We have a good slate. Um, if you're thinking of voting for Tom Steyer or Mike Bloomberg, maybe go fuck yourself. But that's, you know, we can talk about that later. Um, anyway, yeah, just wanted yeah. to do this little politics check-in, Sean, because I value your opinion. Uh, and And, you know politics is is fucking stupid and crazy these days so and uh, yep. it's still on fire that's the that's what the check-in tells us things are congrats still on fire to all our here. listeners over in britain uh you are officially out of the eu you did it uh good for you
1: <laughs> <sighs>
0: yeah things are still on fire over
1: there too, i have
0: right? the slightly controversial opinion that it is probably better for britain to be out of the stupid quagmire of are we or aren't we going to do it than whatever they were stuck in for the last three years um, so maybe you can now try governing your country the, the, Yeah, There's a certain like ripping off the band-aid Sort of yeah, quality to like, it, huh? I think the best case would be never doing the dumb Brexit vote But since you did it It's probably good that you finally followed through with it It's kind of bad that now you have an entrenched Conservative majority for a generation That's not a good outcome of that You guys are stuck with Boris Johnson for a yeah. really long time But you know um, Yeah it makes me feel better About my country <laughs> You know Misery loves company Misery does love company All right, um, We will see you guys Not next week I think Sean You will be busy next week right? No I will be super busy next
1: week My school is hosting a debate So I'm gonna Yeah that's my Saturday does not exist I thought uh, you got away from all that Sean I I didn't know you had to do that No it's that you know I'm pulled back in You can never get away
0: Well have fun uh we will be off next week but the week after that will probably be our top 10 video games of 2019 and i'm very excited for that because we're going to get to talk all about a little game called sekiro so look forward to that it may or may not be one of the games of the year you know we you're you're in a race to see if you can finish it you got you we you
1: now have like a time limit so if you get if you get stuck again each row style on another boss it's going to be stressful for you as shit i'm looking forward to that